I love the What is Politics podcast. It's also a video series. I'll put the links to both. And this episode features Daniel, the creator and host of these, and he puts a lot of effort into each episode. So we really get into talking about what he does. If you're new to anthropology, you might not see the value, but this podcast, this series has clarified so much that I can't describe from what's very important to me is understanding why have we created the global economic system that we have today because I want to change it. And this is about that. It's also about your relationship and your family and work and things like that. We talk about all these different things. He treats it in much more depth in his series. Now, this is a nearly three-hour conversation. Again, watch his series, and you'll hear how we banter in this one, talk about a lot of different things. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm releasing it with very minor edits, since if you want to learn about how anthropology relates intimately to our world, I think you'll love this episode. If not, well, I understand. But that's why I kept it at three hours and didn't break it up into three pieces, because I think you'll enjoy listening all the way through. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Daniel, the host of the What is Politics video series, which I have, I, oh man, I just like watched one or two and then watched the whole thing. <laughs> and now I can't wait for future episodes. I'm like, and I, I know that you, well, first, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. Oh, uh, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm happy to meet you and talk with you. Also, it's an audio podcast because a lot of people, it's like younger people somehow can sit in front of videos and watch them for a long time. But People our age usually want to listen to podcasts, so that's uh, there too. And I can't imagine anyone. People, a lot of people have told me that they binged, watched, or listened to the whole series. And wow, I cannot imagine doing that. It is too like making it is so torturous, and it's such a dense, so dense, you know, in content. But I still, I'm, it makes me happy that people could do that. But I can't imagine uh, doing that. But, well, I did first. Yeah. I came about it through the page of your um, uh, Worldwide Scrotes or something that, that with all the text. Uh, yeah. or, and uh, I did watch the Scrotes video. We'll leave that for later. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I read the text. I just and then used I, that blog because I had it already from a project that I did a million years ago. But yeah. Okay. And I, um, I started listening to it and then I saw it on, on YouTube and then started watching it. And I started watching because I came to it through Dawn of Everything and I was watching episodes 10, 10, 10.1, 10.2. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to the beginning and started, I think actually I've been telling people watch two first, then one, then three, and then mm-hmm. so on. I, mm-hmm. I think you've reversed the first two, but that's. Oh, that's interesting. Because I, I recorded number two before I recorded number one. I forget why I changed the order, but uh, that's maybe I'll switch them back. And I didn't binge watch, but for me, I'm going to explain how the, the, the long story of how it came to it, because I wasn't just looking to be entertained or looking to learn stuff for interesting for, you know, it's interesting on its own, but for me, it's, um, it's like mercenary. It's, it's like, this is what, this was a missing piece of my strategy and everyone who's listening to this or who listens to my podcast knows sustainability is very important to me and um, not just it's important to me, but leadership and and how to not just asking the question of how can we get more sustainable, but actually making it happen. So, yeah. okay. So it's really missing a lot of, there's so much, so many good political podcasts, mm-hmm. but it's all in the ideas realm, but very few people are trying to think about, okay, what can we actually do? Let's do something with this. But yeah. Yeah. I was just watching a video of uh, some really passionate people, but they're just talking and there's no, they're not trying to solve the problems. I, there's a, a, a Venn diagram that I show of if you want to lead on sustainability, you have to have experience leading, 
it's very difficult to lead if you've never done it before. And leadership is not, a lot of people think authority, but leadership is, is social emotional skills. And, and then you have to have experience, you have to have knowledge of science and systems, especially. And then you also have, have to have experience trying to live sustainably. If you don't try to live sustainably, it's this abstract idea and it, you don't recognize what the joys are that come from it, but also the internal challenges. It's like talking about learning piano and actually putting your fingers on the keyboard. There's no yeah. substitute for fingers yeah. on the keyboard. Yeah, but you can't teach piano if you don't know how to play it, <laughs> at least to some proficiency. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're not going to learn it, nor can you teach it. You want to understand it, yeah. All right, so the big picture is that your series clarified and simplified what was hazy. And like I, when I watched it, and I'll explain to people what fell into place, I could see that there were these pieces that like some of them I didn't have a good sense of, and none of them did I figure out how they fit together. And then watching yours, I was like, that's how they fit together. And it fit with a lot of other places in life where um, hierarchy and control over resource made sense, especially in um, back in, in the business world. All right. Mm. So, oh, oh boy. Oh yeah. There's, oh, yeah, um, yeah. there's a yeah. book I, I think you'll love at least the first chapter of called competition demystified and it's by, so I went to Columbia business school. Mm-hmm. One of the professors there is friends with, um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, the big investor guy, Warren Buffett. And uh, yeah, he wrote, and, and this is funny talking about this because you, your stuff is all about there's so much about um, Marxism and uh, French Revolution. And anyway, this view that you have is prevalent in business and in strategy and how people run businesses Which, and how societies yeah. form. There's a big overlap. W- now, which to, parts? Like, what overlaps? I'm really okay. curious about that. So, jump into the end is that um, in. So competition demystified distinguishes between strategy and tactics. Mm-hmm. So tactics mm-hmm. is like, um, what price should we offer this thing at? Uh, should mm-hmm. we, um, should, what person should we hire for a low level position? Strategy is what market should we enter? And mm-hmm. so lots of people over the years have tried to figure out what are the important parts of strategy? And some people who know in 1980, there was a Michael Porter came up with the Porter's five forces model. And Mm -hmm. that was really big for a long time. So these guys say, um, uh, this book says, there's one thing that's the most important thing in business in in terms of strategy. And that is Mm -hmm. the threat of new entrants. Can new people come into your field? Mm -hmm. If you have a, if you have a way of keeping people out of your business, Mm then you can control the market. Yeah. You can create a hierarchy that you run. If you, it's basically, if you have a resource that no one else has access to, and it's Mm -hmm. usually geographical, that's one of the big ones. So um, if you don't have, if you don't have that, then you have to compete with everybody else on, um, Mm -hmm. everyone can come and go. Right. It sounds familiar, right? Everyone can come and go. That's what makes an egalitarian hunter gatherer society versus a, yeah, hierarchical society is the physical realities of egalitarian nomadic hunting and gathering are such that nobody can hog any resources because your whole natural environment is like one giant Costco, you know, where you think people say that 
those hunter gatherers don't do food storage and that's the key to hierarchy it's like no there is food storage it's just all sitting around in the environment everywhere and anyone can just go get food and nobody can hog it and so that prevents anybody from their leaders you know but they're charismatic leaders and people follow them only insofar as they want to the second you're not interesting anymore people stop following you and there's no way uh, you know it's the difference between domination uh, you know authority or uh, leadership versus authority, leadership versus domination. It's the difference between uh, <laughs> consensual uh, sex and uh, rape. You know, there's uh, you once it stopped being con- or, or like S and M versus you know versus uh, sexual assault is once it stops being consensual, mm-hmm. it's domination, it's hierarchy versus something that looks like hierarchy, but it's actually voluntary because everyone is benefiting from it and chooses to be a part of it. Yeah. So in yeah. What I've been telling a lot of people is because I was before your podcast, I'll call it podcast, podcast, video cast. Before that, I was, um, I was onto indigenous cultures that there was something to be learned from them. And I was like, what is it that, why do I keep, everyone says they're from the stone age. And I could, I knew that there was something wrong about the idea of we go through stages of development, but I couldn't tell what the problem was. And I couldn't tell why the more that I lived like, the more that I tried to live sustainably, the more attractive I've had people, I've had guests on the podcast who have lived among the Hadza, the Sun in Southern Africa, the yeah, Kogi in Colombia. Uh, and, yeah. and I kept finding, I like, there's something that I like about it, even mm-hmm. though I recognize that they have, they, they could be eaten by lions and they don't have the comforts and convenience, <laughs> but they have yeah. freedom and they have equality. And that's, mm-hmm. Not, not all of them, but a lot, some of them. Yeah. So the, these ones, yeah. The Hadza, yeah. The, yeah, San, the Hadza. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really valuable. And I didn't know why they had it. I didn't know where it came mm-hmm. from. I didn't know why we didn't have it. So, so th- there's a whole, uh, am I cutting off the, you go ahead. Sure. So there's a whole category. There's different kinds of hunter gatherers, like a whole array. There's, you know, hunting gathering is this really broad category that, uh, involves it includes societies that have almost nothing in common with each other but there is a category of hunter gatherers called immediate return hunter gatherers and these uh, are people who normally live in nomadic bands and a big part of their economy is following around game and hunting large game they also gather a lot of uh, edible foods but they are thought believed for various reasons to resemble most our earliest human ancestors for a whole bunch of reasons and all of these, and they're found, you know, I mean, there's very few hunter-gatherers in general left, and there's even fewer uh, egalitarian, uh, immediate return hunter-gatherers left on Earth. But they're found in all kinds of different environments, in the mountains of India near uh, the Himalayas, uh, in the South African and Namibian deserts, in uh, Tanzanian savanna. There were some in the North America in the 1600s that you can read about in the Jesuit relations. Uh, in the central uh, African uh, rainforests. So these very different environments, but these societies all have like very similar characteristics. Uh, You know, they don't speak any, they're not related to each other in any way that we know of. And they live too far to really travel from one place to the other, really any more than humanity as a whole. But uh, they have very, um, what do you call it? Uh, Ambiguous or sparse religious beliefs. They have no authority figures. There are no chiefs. There are like shaman people, but they don't have any particular authority. There's no d- male-female relations are as egalitarian as anywhere on earth. They're probably the most egalitarian societies on earth in, in terms of gender. Um, 
even children don't always have to obey adults depending on the, the situation. Uh, and they, yeah, so, and their religious beliefs are very non-dogmatic. You know, you ask a Hadza, you can look, there's videos on this on YouTube. You ask a Hadza, what happens after you die? And they're like, uh, well, we bury you and we cry and then we put, then we go away. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what happens to your soul, your spirit? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Some people say you go to the sun, but how am I supposed to know? Uh, so, you know, it's very, and there's a lot of ways in which those societies actually, our industrial civilization since the advent of the welfare state resemble uh, these immediate return hunter-gatherers more and more. But anyways, the thing that makes them interesting from a political perspective is, well, they, they are basically these anarcho-communist societies. They have wealth equality and power equality and gender equality and all the sorts of things that people on the left, you know, love and, and have been dreaming about. And it's been thought of as being utopian and something that's not possible. Oh, look at the Soviet Union. It failed. Any attempted communism always fails. It's, it's against our nature. We're not capable of that. Well, guess what? Not only are there several societies like this that we know of, but they probably are what our original ancestors were like. So it's probably in our genes. Like the reason you're probably so attracted to it is because we're evolved to live like that in many ways, you know, and a lot of the pathologies of our society today, you know, you know, the whole like uh, evolutionary psychology tends to be very controversial, but it's not controversial on certain issues. Like everybody can understand. And I don't think there's many people that dispute the idea that we have such infinite cravings for sugar and fat are because in the, our ancestral environment, sugar and fat were kind of rare. So we crave them a lot because it doesn't matter how much you crave them. You're only going to get so much of them. That's not going to give you that much heart disease and the diabetes. But nowadays we we're in a different environment where it's too prevalent. So we, we make ourselves sick with them, but it's the same with hierarchy. If you look at these hyper egalitarian societies, again, the most egalitarian societies that we know uh, in human history that combine egalitarianism and freedom, which is what we've been told in the Cold War wasn't possible. You can choose either freedom or equality. You can't have both. Well, you know, fraternité, liberté, égalité is real. It exists in these in these uh, societies. So the thing that makes oh, I just had a brain uh, fart as we say, and I forgot. Do you remember what I was saying like twenty seconds ago? <laughs> I, but that is what I think is what we want. We like the feeling of. Oh, so, so for hierarchy, for example. So if you look at these societies, you'll often see that, oh, well, they're so egalitarian. People think, oh, because they have such great egalitarian values. They're just great egalitarian people. Right. But that's not right at all. They actually, and they've done some studies. Um, uh, what do you call those games? You know, the economics games. Yeah. The, the game, game theory stuff. Of, game, game, yeah. game theory. Game, exactly. So they've done some of these games and they found that they actually in anonymous uh, situations, and I forget which game, the dictator game, the, I forget what it is, but they actually share less when it's anonymous than people in other cultures that are more greedy on the whole. And the reason is because in their everyday lives, they're forced to share everything. Everything, yeah. So that when they get a little bit of time to themselves, they want to be a little bit greedy. So we have these instincts to be a little bit greedy and try to get a little bit of dominance because at the end of the day, you can't get that much. Like even in the extremes of like, you know, when you look at uh, upper Paleolithic Europe, where you might have some evidence of some hierarchies and some temporary chiefs, those people still had very limited authority for a short amount of time, maybe one generation at most. Uh, and, and the amount of wealth that they could amass was very low. So we might have this tendency to want more and more power, just like we want more and more sugar. Uh, but the solution was to be in an environment where you just can't get that much. And every, and then we have this sort of balance um, where, you know, it's not, it's not actually healthy to have all the power that you crave and all the wealth that you crave, just like it's not healthy to have all the uh, sugar that you crave and fat that you crave. 
So anyways, I, the reason I think that we're compelled by those societies is because they embody in a lot of ways all of um, what, what we're evolved to be in various ways, psychologically and physically. And uh, they're also the embodiment of this like utopian ideal. And these aren't utopian societies, like they have problems, they fight, they kill each other, um, but they don't have a lot of the pathologies that we have and that we think are ubiquitous, which are result of, I think, hierarchical um, societies. And to me, they tell me that when I, here's something people say a lot, I'll say something like, we got to reduce fossil fuels. And people say, mm -hmm. Well, do you want to return to the Stone Age? Do you want to die at 30? Do you want, yeah. like, every cut is going to give you gangrene? You have to amputate with no anesthesia? Because yeah. that's, what, that's what you get, Josh. That's what's going to happen. But that's, I mean, that's, there's lots of the reasons why people say that. A lot of it is out of ignorance and fear, mostly yeah. fear. And, but why do, what's so, all right, so a couple things I got to mention yeah. because I looked this up. Before yeah. we started polluting, before, yeah. say, 1700, 1800, yeah. we, we had anesthesia, we had vaccines, mm -hmm. we had antibiotics. Mm -hmm. you know, not mm -hmm. like today, but you know, there's no reason right. why we couldn't continue pursuing those things. We, we found right. democracy that way. Yeah. And we don't need those things to have, we don't need pollution to have those things. And the, so one of the things I picked up was that these cultures aren't Stone Age. When I was a kid growing up and we mm -hmm. learned that there were cultures that mm -hmm. were not yet like us mm -hmm. and it was, it wasn't stated so bluntly, but why didn't, it was like, it was our responsibility to teach them and to bring them up to how we were. That's right. what I learned. Right. And yeah. why weren't they like right. us? You know, no one would say it, but unstated was because mm -hmm. they're so stupid and ignorant and we're yeah, so smart. Exactly. And, and I still hear this today, just putting that on my YouTube comments the other day. Like, oh, these people are just too stupid to develop agriculture. It's all, yeah. And so one of the things I learned from Dawn of Everything and Tribe mm -hmm. was that, was the, the story of, uh, I mean, the big case would be uh, the quote from Abraham Lincoln, uh, not, uh, uh, by Benjamin Franklin, of how in, North, the, in the North American colonies where we had um, uh, hunter-gatherers mm. of the Native Americans, lots of different ones, but some were yeah. hunter-gatherers. And then you had the hierarchical Europeans. And mm -hmm. as far as I know, many Europeans who lived among the um, Indians stayed. Mm -hmm. And no Indians who stayed among the Europeans stayed. They always came back. It's, there's a one-way flow. I, I read, it's not exactly correct, but in general, yeah. I read something that was like arguing against that. But in general, yeah, more on balance, yes. So yeah. why did they choose to stay? Like when people really know, like the Europeans yeah. are flummoxed. Why, you know, we, we have, we have science, we have Jesus, you know, we have civilization. Why do they not stay with us? And well, especially, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And so, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, in that era, especially like the Europeans thought that they were really advanced and they had like these dense civilizations and they had certain technologies, but they didn't have one, you know, the level of technologies and comfort that we have today. So the, those, the advantages that they had were very, not that interesting. Like if you're living, because most of these people, and they're, you know, they're, they weren't all just these completely egalitarian societies that had various levels of hierarchy, but in general, in most Native American cultures, you had a much higher degree of autonomy, of freedom, uh, and of a, a life that's more in sync with your uh, human nature than a European society, which had all these levels of a lot more abuse. I mean, look, there's tons of murder and, and, and warfare and, and terrible things going on in, in American society, but you just had much more freedom. Uh, much more ability to be a person not dominated by someone else versus in European society, which was highly stratified, highly stratified 
uh, and everyone's had some, somebody to answer to uh, and much more abusive in day-to-day relations between people. So, so yeah, why would you want to stay in that? <laughs> you know? So they're not living in the stone age. They're living with their environment. And, and yeah. now that, that means that their environment has certain conditions that make egalitarian work because you could live in an environment where it wouldn't work. But in that particular yeah. case, it did. And I think that with not with ignorance or stupidity, but with knowledge and awareness, they looked at the Europeans and said, why would we give up this freedom? Why would we give up this liberty and, and, and ability to do what we want in order to be what subject to your king? That doesn't make sense to us at all. Yeah, not just subject to the king, but subject to the landlord, subject to the lord, subject to this, subject to so many uh, levels of power. And they also knew, like, let's say some of them would have admired some things about European society, and I'm sure they did. They also know that, well, if we're entering this society, we're not going to, no one's going to let us into the nobility class and no one's going to, you know, we're entering the society at the very bottom of, uh, of its class structure. So we're not, that's even makes it even less interesting than it would have been otherwise. Right. Um, but what's interesting is when you see, so yeah, the hunter gatherers in the different societies that exist today, uh, the reason that hunter gatherers didn't choose to do agriculture Uh, I mean, some people didn't live in areas where uh, agriculture was possible or profitable, but in general, immediate return hunting and gathering, nomadic big game hunting is, according to studies, the most calorie efficient way of life that exists. You're spending the least calories and getting the most calories. And you also have a very uh, varied diet because you're going around vast territories. you're, You're getting lots of different kinds of fruits and berries and tubers and this and that, plus a lot of meat. It's good for you. Farming, on the other hand, keeps you usually in one place or a very narrow uh, area. Uh, it's boring work. It's less fun than farming. Uh, you're getting a much less varied diet in general. Uh, so you said it's less, it's less fun than farming, but I think you mean less fun than hunting and gathering. No, no, I'm sorry. Farming is less fun than hunting and gathering. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Farming is much more boring work. Farming keeps you constrained to a small plot of land or a small, you know, if you, there's different kinds of farming where you might be moving around more, but there's your, your range, the scope. You know, you, you see these uh, Paleolithic uh, culture territories and they span across vast continent, like across the continent. You'll see um, uh, the same kind of tools and the same kind of religious figures that suggest that this is one culture that's like spanning across, you know, two continents sometimes. Uh, and then as, you know, when, once agriculture starts and even before just the, the range and scope of human societies just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. You know, so in agriculture, you're just living in this much smaller territory. You're eating a lot of less varied foods. Uh, so people don't want to shift to agriculture generally they tend to shift to it because they have no better option because so for some reason hunting and gathering is no longer viable in this area uh, the climate has changed or uh, some people some other invading peoples have cut off you know certain game routes and things like that and now we're stuck and if we don't adopt agriculture we're going to die and agriculture actually wasn't possible uh, most likely until the uh, what do you call it the the places uh, god no i'm missing it up there's the Pleistocene. So there's enough, enough nitrogen in the soil? I, exactly. There's nitrogen. I looked this up yeah, after watching your... Yeah, there's nitrogen in the soil. And there's also climactic variation because in the Paleolithic, in our ancestral environment, the climate was changing so rapidly that every couple of generations, you probably had to change your subsistence strategy and move around a lot. So there were experiments. You'd find experiments from agriculture like 30,000 years ago, but it's abandoned within a generation because probably the climate just changed and it's not, you can't just keep, so it wasn't a viable way of keeping yourself alive. So in those days you were doing hunting and gathering. And if something happens, you would either have to go to war against another group, uh, you know, and take their territory or die. Well, once uh, the Holocene came and and, uh, farming became possible and viable, 
Well, now you had a third option, which is you can start farming. So people were only farming when the choices were die or go to war, you know, and we're probably going to lose this war, right? They'd probably rather go to war and win than uh, do farming. So yeah, it was, it's, uh, you know, and the, the Jesuit priests who came to North America, you can read the, the Jesuit relations. And uh, these are people who didn't like the heathens. They didn't like the hunter-gatherers, but they remarked like, wow, these are really smart people. They're, they're smarter than our, our common people back home in France, you know? Uh, so just the whole thing about them being stupid is, is ridiculous and not smart enough. It, the hunter-gatherers that exist today know very well that they can do pastoralism and they can do farming and they can do other things. They just don't want to usually because it sucks. <laughs> they have their neighbors and also they have neighbors who do it for them. They'll trade their, their wild uh, forest or, or foraged uh, foods for um, uh, farm foods. Yeah. And let's get some dates here. So Pleistoc so humans go back about 300,000 years. I think that would be Homo sapiens and 3 million to be Homo. They, yeah, the date keeps getting pushed back for Homo sapiens, but the, the furthest back day we have now is up to 350,000 years. It's and not Pleistocene. Yeah, sorry? What's the range of the Pleistocene? Okay, so uh, I don't know how far back the Pleistocene goes. And so, okay, so you have these terms that are confusing, but they overlap. There's Pleistocene and Paleolithic. Uh -huh. Pleistocene is a geological area, era, sorry. Paleolithic is a technolo technological era, uh -huh. but they... I don't know actually where, where they, where it begins, but where they end, they end at the same time. So once the Pleistocene geological area changes into the Holocene, which is the current geological area, uh, era, mm -hmm. unless you're calling it the Anthropocene, but over the last 12,000 years, we've been in the Holocene, the, the uh, Paleolithic era ends as well. And we enter the Mesolithic area and then the Neolithic era. era. But yeah, that's 12, the, the big division is 12,000 years ago. Okay. And that's There's when giant farming could enter a new era. That's when farming multi-generational could take root. Huh, yeah. Pun because before that, in, in the Paleolithic Pleistocene, it would probably make more sense to talk about the Pleistocene, but we always talk about it as a Paleolithic because it's a culture term. But anyhow, um, in the Paleolithic, in the Stone Age, uh, the climate was shifting uh, from generation to generation. And there wasn't enough nitrogen in the soil or in the air, I forget, or carbon dioxide. I always get these th things mixed up. But once the Holocene sets in, the temperature stabilizes enormously. And the, the fluctuations in temperature year by year and generation by generation are much, much less. So uh, farming becomes a viable uh, way of life. All right. Now I'm going to bring, a, a, I think a lot of people, and certainly me before your podcast, would yeah. have heard that as like, okay, that's a bunch of anthropology. What does that have to do with me? Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story of what brought me to you that I started at the beginning yeah, of yeah, our yeah. recording. And hopefully it'll connect all these things and say why this is critical to us here now today. And maybe if you're going to talk about Dawn of Everything, I don't know if your, do your listeners know what Dawn of Everything is? Or they, have you talked about it a lot? Like I'll get to it when we, maybe tell them a little bit what it is. Yeah. So they know. Yeah. So when working on sustainability, I recognized I got a lot of systems thinking in, in my background. So I, I could tell we're trapped in a system. When you feel compelled to do something, that's generally a sign that you're in a system. Yeah. And virtually everyone I know, if I ask them, do you have a sense that there's a problem with the environment? They say, yes. I say, yeah. do you want to pollute? Do you pollute more than you'd like to and would like to yeah. pollute less, but you can't? They also yeah. say yes to that. Yeah. So I was, I was looking for solutions. And some things told me like, uh, you know, just giving people a bunch of facts won't, that generally doesn't help. Mm. I looked at addiction. I looked at abolition. And these are things that, like, the abolitionists are something, they are a group that changed slavery to not slavery. And mm -hmm. 
that was a global change in a relatively short period of time. So I was like, okay, there's something there. Maybe you can work with that. And mm -hmm. kicking addiction, I, I consider ourselves addicted to what fossil fuels bring, comfort, convenience, things like that. Mm -hmm. And you don't help someone get off of a, an addiction by like banging their head. You, you, they need support, listening, role models. And an alternative. So, an alternative. And like everyone I know who's, who's been a drug addict, they almost always, they manage to switch out of it when they find something else to occupy their time and their focus on because addiction gives you a focus and it keeps you on a treadmill. And it's, even if you hate what you're doing, at least you're doing something and you have something to do. You're not just mm -hmm. in this existential angst of, Oh my God, what do I do? <laughs> you know? yeah, it's a multi-pronged approach. Cause yeah, they need to have to tell someone who takes heroin you know, you'll prefer eating healthy and doing exercise and <laughs> earning a living. They're like, I don't think so. <laughs> so they need to see that, you know, it usually helps if someone else has made that transition. Another big thing is like getting over the withdrawal is mm -hmm. that's, you can sure. want to, but that can be really difficult. So you have to, there's a lot of these emotional things and you have to look at their world, but there's still more to it. And what makes the system so stable? Why are we so, why do we have such a hard time getting out of it? And I could tell that there was something about fossil fuels, but I couldn't tell exactly what. And I could tell that liberating yourself from, in my personal case, the less that I required fossil fuels, the more freedom that I found. But I didn't, this is how I put it now after watching your stuff. And I could tell that there was something that, a freedom that came from not using fossil fuels. And it wasn't just that those things polluted and I was not polluting. There was the mental freedom that comes in not hurting people. I don't mm -hmm. like to hurt people and, and I don't mm -hmm. see how you can burn fossil fuels without hurting people. Mm -hmm. So then as the more that I started not relying on fossil fuels, the more I started learning about indigenous cultures and finding them more and more attractive. That brought me to tribe, which is this book by a guy named Sebastian younger, who's been a guest mm -hmm. on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how uh, indigenous people in, in lots of different areas would prefer living the way they did over the way that we live. Mm -hmm. And he also talked a lot about how when our society broke down in situations of war or natural disaster or human created disasters, when the hierarchy of civilization disappeared, people banded together and mm -hmm. they liked it to the point where he was a war reporter in Sarajevo and then in Afghanistan. And he would talk about people in these situations. And like one of the big cases was in during the London Blitz, mm -hmm. they expected that so, you know, Germany's bombing in the forties and you, you don't know when you might get bombed to death. Mm. And so they expected a lot more um, mental anxiety and, and, and they, they anticipated having to provide a lot mm. of mental health services. The mm -hmm. opposite happened. People mm. got more together. Oh, because everyone's in the same boat and you can relate to everyone in a way that you normally couldn't. Oh yeah. There yeah. was some during COVID. What was it that people who are depressed or suicidal uh found that they were less so because all of a sudden everyone was in a similar like in more of a similar position to what they normally experience you know so inflation and depression so they they actually were not everyone obviously i'm sure the rates of depression you know skyrocketed during covid but people who are already depressed often found themselves consoled uh and more part of something because one of the causes of depression is so social disconnection mm -hmm. uh so they found felt themselves a bit more connected to uh society. I could definitely tell that connection was a big piece of it. Cause the more that I act sustainably, the more that contrary to what everyone expects, and I would have expected until I actually did it was that like, if I go someplace 
I was just at this thing and there was no vegetarian food. There's no vegan food. Mm-hmm. And I could tell other people were just like, oh, well, I'll just have meat. Yeah. But I, I don't do that. So I'm, I have to go to the staff and say, at first I said, <laughs> can you help me with this? Or yeah. I just said, there's not, not many options here. And they're like, well, we can help you. And I said, oh, I'll just have some salad, and mm-hmm. uh, which would have been very unsatisfying. And then I realized <laughs> the guy really wanted to help me. He went into yeah. the business of service. You know, this is at a yeah. hotel. Yeah. He went into it because he wants to help people with problems like I had. And then I went back. Yeah. Instead of getting sad, I was like, this guy really wants to help me. And we, I'm not saying we became friends. I, was, I only saw him for a couple of meals. Yeah. But it was, it was more connection, mm-hmm. more, more well, connection. When you're talking about uh, living sustainably and getting off fossil fuels in your life, because I know you have an episode about that specifically, I think, of your own experience, which I haven't heard yet. What are you talking about exactly? Like, what do you mean? How are you living without fossil fuels? Because, of course, like anything you eat probably has been transported by fossil fuels or by airplane or by car. So what's your which in which ways are you specifically talking about for your life? All right. So I'm, re- I'm remembering where I am in the uh, in the what brought me to you. So it's just oh, okay. just on dawn of everything. But yeah. I'll give you the story. We can um, do that later. Yeah. You're listening. All right, well, so, okay. We'll, we'll, I'll answer your question after getting, so I'm reading Dawn of Everything after yeah. reading Tribe mm-hmm. and learning about indigenous cultures. And one of the main thrusts of this book, so it's written by an anthropologist and an archaeologist, David Wenger and David yeah. uh, Graber. Yeah. Uh, David Graber just passed away like just after they finished writing it. Mm-hmm. And Graber is really big. He was big on the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, as, as you know, but yeah. maybe listeners don't. And, um, they talk about, well, they talk about how, how civilization came to be. And they had a really big question, but strangely only go back 40,000 years and not mm-hmm. as far back as they could. Mm-hmm. And they don't, and, and there's this one big question that they ask is why did we used to have all this freedom and equality mm-hmm. and, and now we don't? Why did we get stuck in the way that we are? Well, their, their argument more is because they talk about how we used to shift, our societies used to shift from more hierarchical to more egalitarian, and we changed the nature of our societies more often. And now we seem to just be stuck in these hierarchical societies for the yeah, past. And they talked years. about it as being playful and experimentation. Yeah. And uh, jumping ahead, you're like, yeah. no one chooses yeah. to be in a dominance hierarchy except the person yeah. at the top. And <laughs> it doesn't yeah. make sense that you're like, hey, we're free and having a great time. Let's be subjugated for six months. Yeah, that's exactly. It's, it, that's, and, that's what I was talking about when I said the difference between sexual assault and SM or whatever is it's all voluntary and fun and it might look like a hierarchy, but the second it's a dominance hierarchy, it's not, it's by definition, not voluntary. Nobody chooses to be dominated, you know? Because yeah, when the descriptions you, when you of how... The person doesn't stop, it's, it's not consensual anymore, right? So that's what dominance hierarchy is. Now that now their book doesn't address this, and they just say, yep. "Well, look, here's this one place where six months out of the year it's this way, yeah. six months out of the year it's that way, and here's another place where it's the other way." Yeah. So it can't be. They know how. They know they can be one way. They know it can be another way. So they must be choosing voluntarily. Yeah. Now <laughs> they would be choosing voluntarily, but there are reasons guiding yeah. that choice. And well, some people are choosing more than others, right? Like yeah, yeah, and. So I didn't really, I, I really, what was great about the book is, I mean, certainly they poke fun at a lot of people like um, Steven Pinker is like best time ever. The only thing better is like, it'll be how it'll be tomorrow. And there's a lot of yeah, techno optimists yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. And they take him to task and yeah. Jared, not Jared Diamond, maybe a bit of Jared Diamond too, yeah. but um, uh, Yuval Harari and a lot of these techno optimists. Yeah. yeah. And 
but what, what, what I really loved about it was learning about the huge variety of, of ways that people lived yeah. and not, and, and so that broke me from the mold of there's this one path of, of that, um, uh, I, I never was taught it, but then after getting into this stuff, mm-hmm. I saw that there was like a, there's some name for it of, of like the progression of, that was in, in that we believed that we started as hunter gatherers. And then we, I guess it was from Turgot in the hit, in that book, they would say, um, what's well, a lot of stages. Oh God, I even forget what it's called. Evolutionism. It's not evolutionism, social, oh God, it's not social evolution. It's uh, how, it's so, it's how so civilization basic. like emerge, like stages, stages of civilization theory. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot of those guys at the time were thinking the same thing, but the classic model is the one from, uh, Lewis Henry Morgan, where he says you start from savagery, you go up to barbarism, yeah, and there's three. There's like lower savagery, middle savagery, higher savagery. Then you end up in lower barbarism, middle barbarism, and higher barbarism. And savagery are different kinds of hunting and gathering. Barbarism are, I think, different kinds of pastoralism. And then you had I forget what else. And then there's civilization on the top. I forget what the third one was, but uh, yeah. And and it, it, it's- I think most people have this view of like it's increasing levels of complexity, maybe increasing levels of intelligence, maybe increasing levels of, but it, it's a progression. There's like yeah. a good way and a bad way. Right. And, and, and Morgan was torn because he was very close to the Haudenosaunee uh, people in North America. And he really respected them and liked them and thought that in many ways they were much more, more advanced than the Europeans. But he still sort of saw, he still sort of had that sort of teleological stages of higher stages are better than lower stages. And uh, yeah, he was wrestling with that a bit, but yeah. So even if Dawn of Everything couldn't explain why they were going back and forth six months or their explanation was, was inadequate, although yeah, I didn't realize it. The, yeah, At least they were saying the, they weren't going, it's like they're going forward and backward. They, they couldn't mm-hmm. be going forward and backward. So yeah, that yeah. model broke. Yeah. And, and we have examples throughout history of people going from the Lakota people, I think were farmers at one point originally, and then they became hunter-gatherers afterwards when the introduction of horses allowed them to uh-huh. pursue hunter-gathering, they switched to hunting and gathering, We're different kind of hunting and gathering. But anyways, yeah. And so people are always going back and forth depending on conditions. Then, and I was very happy having read that book because, and as well as Tribe, because that gave me this freedom in realizing I could tell people it's not a return to the Stone Age that I'm talking about. There's a reason, yeah. I mean, there are reasons why there are plenty of things about if we, if we, if we stop using fossil fuels and uranium and, and fusion, if that were ever happened, it's not a degradation. It's, there's lots, it's, it's not that we, that would move backward in a progression. There's a wide range of things, directions we could go. I mean, yeah, it depends, it depends though. It could be a, like, you know, to go, to go back to immediate return hunting and gathering, for example, which is what we're biologically evolved to do in many ways we'd have to kill off 99% of the population of the earth because you need to have the, the population densities have to be around 0.1 person per square kilometer. Mm-hmm. So probably we don't want to do that, I would mm-hmm. assume. Uh, but what we can do is use our knowledge and our technologies and our science in, to create a world for ourselves that is in the best ways possible resembling that for ourselves, you know, and enjoying a lot of the benefits of civilization while also uh, getting rid of a lot of the uh, horrors of civilization and the, uh, the anti-human aspects of civilization. And I think that's possible. I don't, you know, I don't know that I see, I see a lot of debates. I honestly haven't dove, dove into the, uh, I'm probably a bit afraid to the uh, technology, you know, is, is nuclear, you know, I hear people now a lot on the left talking about how great nuclear power is and we should all do nuclear power. I'm a bit skeptical of that. 
uh, we're gonna your your stuff gives a great way of understanding that. So let me keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I then by chance I'm reading something that refers to your uh, to what is politics, mm -hmm. and so I watch the stuff on on your criticisms of Dawn of Everything. Yeah, and I went from thinking like who is this guy and and what's with yeah. Pac-Man <laughs> suit and, and then which yeah. I'd like, uh, but, and then but you kept referring but, to but, stuff. But, 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 I, Something cut off. I missed what you said. Who is this guy? And what was the second part? Oh, the Pac-Man suit. Oh, the Pac-Man suit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I used to play Pac-Man. I mean, that was like a big thing for me when I was a kid. It was like came out just <laughs> at the right time for my age. You know? And um, be into it, yeah. <laughs> but you kept referring to things about like you kept being very clear about what the left is, what the right is, what hierarchy is, what dominance yeah. is, what's um, and and. I think maybe once or twice you you referred to your term words. So you you. <laughs> you were very clear about some things. And so I went back to the beginning and you, you, I'll let you in a second, talk about what I'll, I'll ask you, like what led you to clarify things so much. But once I got that clarity, then I started realizing why it started. Why do we live in a system that's so resilient right now? So mm -hmm. from his book, from their book, the dawn of everything, mm -hmm. why we were so, why we're stuck. And mm -hmm. for me, why I like the idea of living without fossil fuels, mm -hmm. I mean, besides the cleanliness and, and, and the mm -hmm. better health. Mm -hmm. And all right, so um, I want to get into why left is left and right is right and what mm -hmm. the differences are. Yeah. But I'll just say that hierarchy, sure. we lived in, uh, now I'll say something for your criticism. Say, tell me if I get this right. Um, yeah that when we lived in, you're saying immediate return to hunter-gatherers, I, I I, or anarcho-communists, but to me, the simple ways, play, cultures that were, where people were free to walk away and, and, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. e equal. Mm -hmm. Why did we live that way for so long? Because in that time, we were mostly in Africa and you could, if you, all the vegetables and, and fruit and animals were all distributed all over the place. So if, I tried mm -hmm. to tell you, you have to do what I say. You could just walk away. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so it's impossible to form. A, I can't rule over you. I can tell you what to do and you'll follow it as much as you want to. And what changes, what makes a hierarchy possible. And this I learned from you mm. is that if, and I, I'm very curious how much of this is just, you came up with to, to simplify it so much yeah. and how much of it is, <laughs> was out there. Yeah. Cause I'm not an anthropologist. Yeah. But what you said was that a dominance hierarchy can form when one person or group can control a resource, the others, and you can't go get away. Yeah. So well, if I control a resource, yeah. but you can just go somewhere else and get it, all right, I yeah. can't tell you what to do. If I can't yeah. control the resource, I also can't tell you what to do. Yeah. But say, the, I've been telling this to a lot of people lately. So imagine there's like, we get moved to a place and there's great fishing and mm -hmm. no other source of protein around. Yeah. And, and, this, and the source of, and the fish is like one spot. Mm -hmm. Then I can, then I can control, if I can control that spot, then I can force you to do what I want or else you don't get any yeah. fish. Yeah. And exactly. generally that's going to be, um, if some, some people might come and invade, it's generally going to be related males. So you'll get the first, you'll often get a male dominant domination there. Now, if you have another yeah. situation where <laughs> you have to, people want to stay in one place for whatever reason, but you have to hunt 
many months of the year, then it might be female dominated because the women are in one place. Sort but, of. <laughs> I'm still flying that. Yeah. But let's say several months out of the year, the fish are plentiful, but the rest of the time they're not. Mm -hmm. But you can dry the fish. Now mm -hmm. you have a bunch of dried fish that people could come and attack. So yeah. <laughs> when the fish are plentiful and it's all up and down the river, you're going to have one type of structure because you can't control access to the fish. But once you dry the fish, so six months, it might be six months out of the year. It's one way. Yeah. Well, you without mixing, so you're talking about the Pacific Northwest Coast cultures. Uh, I, well, I'm you, just speaking hypothetically, you, but yeah, that's the, hypothetical. Okay. Cause that example comes straight out of the Pacific Northwest coast, except it doesn't yeah. exactly work that way. There's a lot of things going on. I want to, uh, can we rewind or you want to keep. So, okay. So I'll try to wrap it up that. Yeah. Um, so I started realizing that why are we stuck in the system that we are in the global system that we are? Yeah. And there's a major resource that is that everyone relies on, and that's energy in the form of mm -hmm. fossil fuels or nuclear or fusion, fission or fusion. Mm -hmm. Well, not fusion mm -hmm. yet. No. So that out of 4 billion people, out of 8 billion people alive no. today, how yeah. many people can control access to fossil fuels? Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands? It's a pretty small number. Yeah. And find me a place where there's oil and the government has not been infiltrated and corrupted by fossil fuel interests. <laughs> they, course, yeah. That's the resource that's being controlled. And for a long time, people could get away. But as you mentioned, you can't get away from one of the reasons hunter gatherer culture is stopping hunter gatherers is they, they don't have enough land anymore. So like mm -hmm. the, the son, I, I don't know if you know James, James Sussman, he lived yeah. among the son for a while. And yeah, so he was yeah, on the yeah. podcast. And yeah. he talks about how through, um, I think it's tapping agriculture, tapping aquifers, that farms can encroach into the Kalahari Desert. Yeah. So they can't, once you get below a certain size, they can't live that way anymore. Yeah. So there's not, no getting, there's no getting away from our, our dominance yeah. hierarchy. Yeah. So as long as we depend on fossil fuels mm. and switching up uranium for fossil fuels won't change that, that's, that's probably even tighter control then you have okay. a resource that can be controlled. Yeah. And once the population of the earth got over a certain amount, there's nowhere to go otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, from the abolition perspective, I picked up that most things that slavery provides mm -hmm. are non-essential things. Okay. Like in North American slavery, there's a bit of rice, which is edible. But yeah. tobacco, you don't need cotton. Right. You don't need people have been wearing clothing since long before cotton was around. Mm. You don't need uh, indigo. That's totally contrivance. Mm. Yeah, um, you don't need rum or molasses. Mm -hmm. So likewise, fossil fuels, we live for a long time without fossil fuels. And if we stop buying, if we, if we choose to, okay, if people <laughs> in 1800 North America said, I'm not going to buy cotton anymore. That would really weaken that, yeah, that the resource would go away. Yeah. If we said, and, and no one would be without clothes. But if we today I, said, yeah, I see I'm not going to live with what fossil fuels bring. But do we have, and this is, look, I don't know. And I haven't explored it because there, well, there's a lot of things. So you're basically positing that. So I was discussing that if you can control the resources that people need and there are no preferable alternatives then you can have a dominance hierarchy where people yeah. are forced to obey you 
because they don't have any better alternatives to get. Um, that's what clicked for me. Yeah, that was so, I mean, of so several things of your so stuff. You're saying that since we're all dependent on fossil fuels uh, and a small clique of people, basically a class of people control the fossil fuels, then that's the key. And if we could somehow get ourselves away from fossil fuels, then we'd all be free. I'd say that, I mean, well, that's- move in that direction. Yeah, because it's a class of people. There's one class of people that control fossil fuels, but there's also people that control agriculture and control employment and control everything else. There's small groups of people who control everything uh, that other people depend on. So there's a, it's more than just fossil fuels. So when well, it comes to fossil fuels, which is an important thing because it's potentially causing a you know civilization-ending catastrophe the way we're using them, uh, we in order to sustain the numbers of people that exist on the earth comfortably or in any way at all, we need to replace it with something else that can produce the things that we need. And I don't, I haven't explored enough to know or to have a strong opinion on how possible that is or not. I would hope so. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. All right. So yes, it doesn't, if we, if we were to not use fossil fuels anymore. Yeah. And that's not giving up things we need because we, um, I mean, to some extent, okay. The green revolution switched something that didn't require fossil fuels to requiring fossil fuels. And, okay. and oh yeah, the green revolution requires um, fertilizers, which come from uh, ultimately natural gas and the right. Bosch process right, right, right. and pesticides, which also come from fossil fuels. Right. So that dramatically changed the control, the hierarchical nature of agriculture. Mm -hmm. It was local before. Mm, I see. I see. Now, can you return it to a local license? Like, and I'm in general, I'm in favor of decentralizing power as much as possible. There's different ways of thinking about going about that. And it doesn't, I don't know that it necessarily means like, you know, let's say you have one resource that everybody depends on like fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. let, let's say fossil fuels weren't harmful to the environment. Let's pretend that we found uh -huh. some kind of energy like nuclear fusion, which doesn't exist yet, or is just beginning to be, you know, possible. Let, and let's say that's a very clean energy, doesn't destroy the environment, and it's this magical source of energy. Now, the problem with it would be that you'd have small group of trillionaires owning it. You know, Jeff mm -hmm. Bezos or whatever, you know, nuclear fusion uh, trillionaire would own that, and that would be the problem with it. So, what you would have to do with that is make it so that it's owned by everyone who depends on it, meaning everybody on Earth, basically. You'd need to distribute ownership in that way and, and make it a cooperatively owned uh, resource. So that's the solution to that problem. If, but for my, in my view, like the problem with fossil fuels isn't necessarily that it's a thing that we all depend on. It's the thing that we all depend on that is destroying the world. <laughs> it's that part. That it's is, both of these things. Yeah. From, from that, a to me, that that's more uh, the problem with it than the fact that it's because you can take something and make it to, uh, just spread out ownership. It's just about what ownership. What I'm it's getting at problem. here, yeah, yeah. What I'm getting at here is that is that why is the system so stable? Is that people believe that there's no alternative? What your stuff shows is that the alternative is actually preferable. Yes. We think, oh my God, if I have to have my tooth extracted and I don't have Novocaine, it's yeah. going to be horrible. And thirty, <laughs> I'm going to die at thirty. But that's not the case. That's our projection because of our addiction. This that stuff I don't know, and I can be convinced. You know, you show me some stuff like, oh yeah, we we can, uh, you know, you can replace this with that, or you don't really, need, you know, there's plenty of stuff we don't need. That's for sure. Like half, you know, you think of half the products that are created all the time 
are for absolutely no purpose. Like we're piling out reams and reams of clothes more than we need reams and reams of junk that nobody wants, but because it generates a profit, we still uh, produce it. But that's, yeah. But the, the, the solution to the hierarchy question is just about we've, Oh, how do we like David Graeber and Wengro in their book, we're trying to make it sound like all we need to do is change our ideas and we can just change our society. And what I was trying to say is like, no, you have to take into into consideration the actual conditions that people live in. And in the past, you had conditions that didn't exactly change very radically over long periods of time, right? You'd have similar conditions, like even in the Paleolithic where the the environment's changing back and forth, it's, it's changing back and forth in sort of a constant way for a long period of time. And people, I don't think had a giant, choice in their social structures there's always a range of choices like if it's minus 30 if it's if it's room temperature outside i can wear any number of types of clothes i can run around naked i could wear a suit and i'm fine but then in in very restrictive conditions it's minus 30 outside well i technically have a range of choices but i'm just going to wear the warmest thing possible right so my choices even though i have an infinite number of choices the practical choices that i'm going to do are very very limited now um in a complex society like ours and, and over the last, you know, several hundred years, societies have been changing so radically, so quickly that, you know, in our lifetime, we see changes, but we, we think, oh, well, you know, these hierarchical societies have existed for 5,000 years, that's forever. But just think of the insane massive changes that have happened since the printing press, since uh, penicillin, since whatever, things are changing very radically. And things will often change faster than people realize that the change has happened so in a sense, consciousness is a huge barrier. Like we don't, what happens, it's like in a workplace, you, when you're in a, or let's take the, the rent, the rent environment. Okay. So I'm a tenant lawyer. So in a housing crunch, prices go up because supply is low and demand is high. And landlords think, oh, I can get more for this, this um, unit. And then they'll charge more and people don't have much choice. So they, rent it for more now when the market goes down like when 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 supply goes up or relative to demand like let's say half the population leaves and then this the supply and, and demand are more uh, even what landlords often do is they just will refuse to rent for lower than they were renting for before because they just don't like the idea mm-hmm. and for several years three four years sometimes even though supply and demand landscape has changed completely the price doesn't match the market doesn't adjust it will take a few Prices years are sticky they say yeah exactly and the landlords are hoping well i'm just going to wait till the market picks up because i don't want to be you know i don't like i don't like i'd rather lose you know i have a lot of money i'd rather lose money than rent at this low price because it bothers me it's not rational but people do that um so it's a change but then eventually they kind of realize it and that change in consciousness will force the um rents to adjust um and you have that in terms of power imbalances some catalyzing event will happen. I talk about how like World War I was an event like that where people realize like, oh, I can demand all of these rights now. Like like your COVID, you know, people are like, oh, uh, I've been working at this crappy job for 15 years and I didn't realize I had another choice, but then COVID forced me to, to live a different way. And now I realize I don't need to have this crappy job. And there's a certain percentage of people who have figured out some way or another. I don't know what they're doing, if they have only fan sites or if they're selling drugs, but they're not returning to labor. Or maybe they start a business, but they're not returning to labor force. And this is just a catalyzing event, which changed consciousness, made people able to uh, 
realize that they had different alternatives. So in a society that's changing rapidly like ours, I think that we, the conditions have changed, which have made, make it possible now to have a much more egalitarian society, a much more free society. But I think that our consciousness hasn't caught up with the realities yet, but that can happen pretty quickly if, if we don't all die in some environmental uh, collapse, right? Well, I, all right. So this is clarifying what I, as long as we depend on fossil fuels, mm-hmm. the dominance hierarchy will remain. So it's necessary, but not sufficient to get off of that. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Again, because if fossil fuels were a clean energy, it's not the fact that a small group of people can dominate it that makes it the hierarchy. It's that they do dominate it. So if you just take away their domination and spread out the ownership and control of that resource among everybody, you've solved the problem without having to get rid of the fuels. But the problem with the fuels is that they're so dangerous. You see what There's I mean? multiple problems with the fuels. Yeah. So they pollute. Yeah. And by the way, I, I have to say this, fusion still, even if it were perfect in every way that you're thinking, yeah. from a physics perspective, it still produces waste heat. Okay. And as long as we grow exponentially at a couple percent per year, yeah. it's remarkably fast how fast we overheat the planet. Okay. Like yeah. right now, all of industry, heats, it does heat the earth. We're, yeah. we're taking fossil fuels from underground, burning mm-hmm. them, that yeah. heats the earth. Yeah. Compared to how much the sun heats the earth, it's very small. Right. But it's only a few human lifetimes that if we keep growing um, by a couple percent a year, our economy, yeah. Yeah. with all reasonable amounts of decoupling, yeah. we would be heating, our industry would be heating on comparable levels to the sun. Now, we <laughs> would never be able to reach yeah. that level because right. already with the yeah. sun, it's, we're having all these problems. Yeah. But it's like remarkably short. And I can yeah. send you papers of the studies. And, um, sure. and that, that's the thing too, is like economic growth, there's obviously a limit to that. Like you can't, you know, in a finite world, you can only grow so much, obviously. Yeah. And this is like the absolute outside, outside envelope of second law of thermodynamics. It's just like, you're yeah. not going to get around that one. Right. If just looking at that, nothing else, we got a couple of human lifetimes if we to try yeah. to grow at the rate that we are, and yeah. so fusion is not a solution in terms yeah. of of harming the planet and destroying, you know, lowering Earth's ability to yeah. sustain life. But we can't stop ourselves from using fossil fuels as long as we're in the system. As long as mm. there, we're we're stuck in it. That what's making us stuck is the control over the resource that. Um, yeah, but I'd say that the control again, because you know, I'm, I'm not, of, I, so I'm not. I'm not yeah. saying that we we distribute fossil. I'm not saying let's imagine if it was distributed. Yeah, I'm saying what if we? I'm saying we don't need it. Well, I think we need to a phase out of it just because it's going to destroy us, right? Like that's that's the reason for me why we need to phase out of it. I don't think that because I think the solution to a lot of other problems that we have mm-hmm. are take things out of the hands of minorities of people who control things that majorities of people depend on. This is a very socialist view. Like that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. How are you going to do that? Like you, you, because the way that the control over fossil fuels works is that it's control over geographical areas, land. Yeah. Yeah. And they will do whatever it takes to protect that. Yes. But okay. Hmm. I mean, democracy involves people who are in remote different areas of a territory having theoretically some input 
into some power that can control things from all the other areas. So that would be the way it you know, would work. You'd have some kind of system of democratic control of resources that, you know, well, we have all the water, but you need all the water. Well, we somehow have to work, manage it together. You know, well, the, way that we had, the way that we had energy to run Which, society. What we do within countries, how we do, except it's not very democratic, but that's sort of what we're trying, what we try to do. Yeah. The way that we had power before fossil fuels was through yeah. food. So that's solar power, yeah. which was distributed mm -hmm. roughly equally around mm -hmm. the world. So mm -hmm. you could control land, uh, basically controlling land by say feudal lords was a way of controlling yeah. actual physical power. That's how they controlled, yeah, exactly. That's how they controlled it. Yeah, that's how the feudal system worked, yeah. So once fossil fuels came, the amount of power you could get from controlling just one oil well was way more than, than a, right. a big farm or a big feudal domain. Yeah. Yeah. So people realized, let's, we got to control the oil wells. And at first, the oil was all over the place, but now it's become very consolidated. Yeah. So As has everything. Right? Multimedia yeah. mergers and every, every corporate merger of every, uh, yeah, every resource. Well, all these resources are fossil fuel powered. And if we go electrified yeah. everything and it's uranium, then it's the control of uranium is just as tight. So how do you, yeah, cause I don't have, I don't have a solution to this, but how do you uh, get rid of fossil fuels without having to decimate the population of the planet? I don't know. Okay. So this is, so now here, you know, tell me about it. I want to know. Now let's get to my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know about, you know, pollution and uh, yeah. global warming and sea level rise. But I never yeah. acted on it because I always felt like, you know, someone will solve it. I can't do it. It's, you know, governments and corporations, individual action doesn't matter. Which is crazy that, that we have these, you know, you do surveys, like 75% of people think, oh, climate change is going to destroy us. What are you doing about it? Zero. Nobody's knows, nobody knows what to do. We don't learn what to do about things, anything. Like there's so many, if you look like, in, you know, in the US, you have the Republicans and the Democrats, which and people who think who are so polarized, but they agree on so much, you know, they disagree vehemently on certain things, but they agree very much on other things like, you know, getting money out of politics. I think 90% of Republicans and Democrats are both on, on the same side on that issue, but nobody does anything about it because they, nobody taught people how to get organized to do anything about anything that's political. That's part of the education system in a hierarchical uh, country. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. It's, I mean, part yeah. of a dominance hierarchy is not, once it kicks in, then you have all, it creates a belief system that sustains it. Right. So, so even that's, that's true for every, even in an egalitarian system, it's interesting in the egalitarian foragers, people, they have egalitarian values as well, right? They value mm -hmm. uh, equality and they defend it very fiercely. But the reason is ideology usually comes in to stabilize a system, whether it's an egalitarian system or a hierarchical system, because you don't need people testing the limits of it all the time. It creates chaos. So if there are people who naturally kind of want to dominate more than others. So if you imagine in an egalitarian hunter-gatherer society, if at the end of the day, even if you want to, oh, I, I forgot, one of the big reasons that those societies are egalitarian, and that's Christopher Bohm's uh, uh, realization, is that it's when Homo habilis started inventing project, long-distance projectile oh, yeah, weapons. Yeah. Uh -huh. So what happens, so in chimpanzees, you also have, they might be living in the same environment or a similar environment as a human hunter-gatherer group is, but a, um, a big male or strong and socially adept male can form coalitions, which, which he can dominate other people and rise to the top of the wealth hierarchy. And he gets uh, the food first and he gets to have sex with the females first. Um, 
But in humans, what starts to happen is once you and our homo ancestors, once you have long distance projectile weapons, well, somebody tries to dominate or start a domination coalition. Well, the, the littlest peewee Herman guy can take a bow and arrow with a poison tip and, and kill you, you know, and a woman can do that too. And anybody can kill anybody. So it makes domination impossible. Now, if you had them in a modern hunter-gatherer society and it happens every once in a while, somebody tries to get too big for his britches and starts to dominate in a certain way, uh, it doesn't get anywhere. It causes social chaos. And often, like in the sand, you might have read the article about when um, there was a guy who was a three-time murderer. He was a big pain in the ass. Yeah. And eventually the whole the community got together and, and killed him. They executed him. And they him all took their turns he, of participating in the ritual. Yeah, to, to show that this is a communal you know, that we don't murder people lightly. This is serious. And we all are part of this. You know, it's a symbolic thing. They all took a turn, even after he was dead, like every person stabbed him once. So the reason you want egalitarian values, and they have all these ways of preventing people from getting to that point, like that's the rare person that like kind of like filtered through the system is because if people are doing that all the time, you just have chaos all the time. You're never going to succeed in dominating people for very long because the conditions don't allow it, but you will have a lot of chaos. So in a hierarchical society, in certain conditions, like if you have constant peasant rebellions and constant labor rebellions and constant this and constant that, in conditions where nothing's going to change, it's just bad for everybody. Everybody's going to be worse off. You're going to have rebelled. Half of you guys are going to get killed. It's bad for the, the, the ruling class. And in the end of the day, it's bad for the other class. So you have, and obviously in the interest of the ruling class, the ruling class creates ideologies of, of, of conformity and that you you don't test the system. But what happens is every once in a while, things get so bad that you do test the system. And once the conditions have changed, you suddenly realize like, hey, I pushed back and now the boss can't do anything because there's a labor shortage. Oh, wow. Let's all, you know, Starbucks workers, like everybody's going on strike all of a sudden, you know, because something changed, but nobody realized it until conditions had changed. But the ideology is there to stabilize the system. Even if there's not, like, you know, even if you're in, in a situation where, there's always going to be this hierarchy in this situation because there's just no way to get around it. The domination of this group is too powerful, but they still want to stop chaos people from trying because it just is a headache. Yeah. Culture has a lot of roles. And one of them, the, I don't know if I got this from you or on my own, but mm -hmm. the word guardrails is what right. I think of. Yeah. And that, so in, in a hunter gatherer society, you talked about projectile weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, satire and humor and making fun mm -hmm. of people seems to be a really yes. big one that yeah. when when a hunter comes in if the hunter brags about having the biggest catch oh yeah everyone says that's what there's like skin and bones on that animal it's that's disgusting i'm not gonna eat this garbage yeah they all make fun of it and they all you know they take him down a notch yeah i don't want the guy just getting ideas <laughs> right. and their guardrail the guardrails work in a hierarchy as well so absolutely in i mean just look at the culture of 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 uh the american south uh, before the war, before the mm -hmm. Civil War, it's, you know, there's uh, blacks are subhuman. They, they, yeah, exactly. they need to be told what to do. And we are civilized and we're bringing that, you know, the whole belief it system makes around people there. On top, not feel like the monsters that they are. Mm -hmm. And also they teach, and meanwhile, they're teaching a certain kind of style of religion to the slaves. The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, you know, rebel against the hierarchy on earth is the hierarchy on, in heaven and you'll get your reward after you die. You know, don't shake things up, you know. Yeah, and yeah. in today's world, you have things like, I mean, find me uh, a hardcore capitalist who doesn't say something like, this has lifted more people out of poverty than anything yeah. else. Right. <laughs> they, I mean, it's always couched in, we're helping the, mo the most needy. We're helping the yeah. least fortunate. Yeah. And I mean, this is like Milton Friedman's, that's exactly where he starts every right. time, not every time, but you know, yeah. this is how to help the poor people. Yeah. 
and I, 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 I think that in their hearts, they believe it. I think you some know, people, but yeah, every, no one wants to think that they're just a greedy hobgoblin, just gobbling up, you know, like there's a landlord that I deal with and uh, he kind of completely gentrified this neighborhood and got rid of all these, evicted all of these really local businesses that had been there for years and put, you know, Lululemon and all this crap. And I spoke to him once and he was like, well, I'm doing everyone a favor. Like they had all these stupid little cafes. Who wants that? Now we have Lululemon. That's great. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks they're doing everybody else a favor. So th these are the beliefs of, of the hierarchy, hierarchy that we live in today. And yeah. you're struggling to see how can we live otherwise? Yeah. So, all right. So back to me, if you don't yeah. mind. <laughs> At one point, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a whole story behind it of I look, what really triggered it was this one time I'm looking at my own garbage and I say, maybe I can't <laughs> fix the whole world, but this garbage yeah. I'm responsible for. And this garbage will end up right. in, in, in the world. And yeah. so I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food. And there's a whole story yeah, about yeah. it. And I thought it was yeah. going to make my life worse because I thought, you know, I'm in New York and there's better food everywhere. People train their whole lives to be great chefs. And, and yeah. there's this whole yeah. system bring me and, but the opposite happened. There was about six mm -hmm. months of learning how to cook from scratch. But then my food started getting tasted better and more fresh. And, and everyone here at this point yeah. is like, oh, you could do that because you're privileged. Okay. But yeah. <laughs> it also can, I, it, it also, you also see how to, I also began to see how to change the system to, we want more, fa more farmers markets mm -hmm. in more places. And so, you know, I, I do workshops in the Bronx and things like that to, to make yeah. this more accessible. We're going to do urban agriculture and cool stuff like that. There's a lot of cool. Uh, oh yeah. man. There's this, Drew, I mean, there's a lot of these places, but there's one where I've made a, a, some really good connections called Drew Gardens in the Bronx. And I'm yeah. so glad that no one told them what everyone tells me, which is they can't do what they're actually doing. And uh -huh. they have this wonderful yeah. garden. I mean, I, I love Central Park and Drew Gardens has an equal hold to my heart as, and because I know the people. It's like just a few people that cleaned up this wrecked place. Anyway, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's the, if people could grow a, a little bit of their own food also, they would be less dependent on uh, their boss for their wages as well. That's a big thing. And that's so one I, of the reasons that they tried to dispossess all the peasants in the Industrial Revolution because they're like, these guys don't want to work for us. Like, I can't get enough cheap employees because all these people can just grow their own food. We need to take away their, you know, make their farms unviable. Well, the, the, the pattern yeah. shows up all the time when people yeah. feel, when, when the people in charge of the dominance hierarchy see their the resource, yeah. either people start being able to get away or... Mm -hmm someone's getting access to their resource or the resource becomes unnecessary, they will defend it. Yeah. So um, anyway, I had this flip of, of mindset that before were, before I thought um, pollution, uh, acting more sustainably would make my life worse. But mm -hmm. now I started saying, wait a minute, why did I believe that it would make my life worse when it actually made my life better? And what mm -hmm. other places in my life might that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a couple of years later, I challenged myself to go for a year without flying. And there was a whole story around that. Right. Yeah. I thought, well, that's going to make my life horrible, but it made my life yeah. better. Yeah. And then there were a couple other experiments, but like the, the other big ones were, um, I was reading this article about how a lot of the world doesn't refrigerate like we do. And this article mm -hmm. is about Vietnam. Yeah. And so I look at my fridge. It's the most polluting thing in my life at the point. The, the thing that's, that I'm, that, that's leading me yeah. to pollute the most. Yeah. So before I can think about it, just go unplug the fridge. <laughs> I made yeah. it three months. Yeah. The next time I made it six and a half yeah. months. The yeah. next time with my goal of eight months, I'm still going and I'm, <laughs> I'm probably like, I'm probably like 15 months in. Like I, I may never plug my refrigerator back in again. Right. And consistent with each time I do these experiments, 
it connects me more with the farmers. It connects me more with people around me. It makes my food more healthy, more fresh. Now, I don't know. I expected the opposite. Yeah. Your situation though, is, is that something that everybody can replicate? Like, cause you have to earn a living at the same time. I don't know. You you're know. saying what everybody says, which is you're, yeah. you, you live in a, you, you've lived among a certain set of beliefs yeah. that, yeah. um, it's difficult to break out of mm -hmm. except experientially. So, yeah. um, I, the next thing I did was to last so, May. Yeah. I, know, go I was curious if I could go for my, my electric bills with the fridge off was like a dollar a month, $2 a month. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I wonder if I could go to zero. So I, I decided to see if I could go for one month with a zero electric bill. <laughs> yeah. That was in May. I had no idea how I'd make it more than two or three days. I'm still yeah. going. I'm in my eighth month. Yeah. And yeah, I need to, you have a whole episode on this, don't you? I think a whole bunch. And by the okay, time wanna, this goes I, up, I've actually been, um, the New Yorker is doing a story on me, a small, not a, a story, like a, a small piece on me in yeah. the talk of the town. And all day, yeah. like over the past couple of days, their the fact checking is insane, which I'm glad to, <laughs> that they're doing. Yeah. And so I believe yeah. it'll come out on Monday morning. And oh, interesting. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that because I've done what I've done, anyone can do what I've done. What I am suggesting right. are, is a couple of things. One of the big things going through my mind in all of these experiments was whether it's flying or pa packaged food or refrigerators is thinking people have lived for 300,000 years without this. If they can, mm -hmm. I can. Is that, does that mean everyone can? Maybe not. Maybe. And then the other thing is, See, that's the issue. but then the, here's what people, people can do. 20,000 humans and 500,000 humans and 2 million humans. Now we have 8 billion humans. It's a different world, right? What I'm proposing is not that everybody copy me in mm -hmm. my exact actions. Mm -hmm. What I'm suggesting is that, I mean, I use the corporate lingo of to go through a mindset shift followed by a process of continual improvement. Mm -hmm. So when I unplug the fridge, most people describe that as extreme. Mm -hmm. Now I describe that as traditional because fridges <laughs> have only been around about a hundred years. So that yeah. means everyone, many people in the world today, plus everyone before about a hundred right. years ago, lived Never in refrigerators. Yeah, yeah. But what's more relevant is that however big a step it is compared to mainstream America compared yeah. to what I did before it was a small step. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking okay. lots and lots of small steps. I'm not saying do one yeah. thing and stop. Yeah. If you, if you try to do lots of things without the mindset shift, each step feels like it's a burden. Each step feels like deprivation sacrifice, but you need a whole network of an economy that will support you doing that. So you, I don't know your, again, your personal situation, you might have, means of where you have the time to get food other ways i don't know you have some resources sustaining you but if we're if there's going to be a massive shift on that scale and I, I i support this we need to change the whole nature of the economy such that people have the time to engage because you know uh and i know this from experience too when you have more time you can save more money and you can do things more sustainably like when you uh well also depending on how your city is designed i don't i don't have a car you know, I've never had a car, but I don't need to have a car because I live in a great city with good public transportation and I can bike all winter and, uh, and, and whatever. But if your city is built like, you know, uh, Arizona in Arizona or whatever, like, I don't know that you can live like that. You need a whole and you need an economy that will support all of that. And part of that to me is democratizing uh, the economy. If you take one of the big problems with everything is that the, every, every choice, like when I say I'm a socialist, I'm not against markets, but I'm against unlimited property rights, which is part of 
the part of capitalism that uh, socialists, early socialists were, were against to begin with. And a lot of early socialists were very pro-market. And the market is just you choosing what to do with your resources and, and who to exchange it with. And that's not inherently a bad thing at all. But the problem is when you can amass uh, enormous amounts of resources uh, unchecked. So when a, the, our entire economy is small groups of people who own things that other people depend on, your workplace, uh, natural resources, uh, giant companies that employ millions of people or that millions of people use. And all those things are just geared towards profit. All they're doing, like any customer service, any benefits you get is just accidental to the profit that it makes. That's an insane way of governing an entire society. It makes no sense. And all of the problems that we have almost come straight out of that. So if we democratize all of the uh, all of these things, like the one, you know, Jeff Bezos controls Amazon. No. How about all the people who work at Amazon and all the people who use Amazon, they should control Amazon and make it so that Amazon exists to serve the people that it serves, not just to make profits for the shareholders. Uh, you know, all the problems we have with the social media apps, um, you know, uh, like the algorithms of Facebook that, you know, that caused a genocide in, in Burma because, uh, <laughs> do you know that story? Uh-huh. So, so, um, you know, the social media apps, all they want to do is just get more engagement. They want to keep yeah. you on as long as possible so that you can see more advertisements so they can sell their advertisements for more. Uh, that's the business model because the whole point of social media is profit, not the ostensible point of social media, which is keeping us connected. And social media is a very valuable tool. I think it's a great idea. It's a great way. It keeps me connected. I get invited to things with people that I've stayed out of touch with. Then I go see shows that I wouldn't see with, you know, without social media, I, you know, there's a lot of things I would, I would be disconnected from, but because it's all for profit, um, one of the things that engages people the most is anger and, and outrage. And yeah. Outrage. So they, the, the algorithm, which is just that, you know, well, maximize engagement, that algorithm, in a, I'm sure that the, uh, the executives of Facebook aren't sitting there like, let's get people to hate each other and kill each other. They're just like, let's get more engagement. Well, that algorithm produces more anger because people uh, posts that generate more anger, get more engagement. So they get multiplied more. And in Burma, they, this triggered a cycle of all of these fake stories and that were racist against uh, the, the Rohingya exponentially went out of control and it led to this genocide and they had to apologize and change their algorithm as a result. But the point is you have a technology that could be wonderful. Airbnb could be a wonderful technology. Uber could be a wonderful technology, but they're all terrible. All they're doing is, you know, uh, what, you know, Keynes said that, Oh, in the future, we're all going to be working 15 hours a day because as, as technology advances, we're looking to have robots and machines do all the work. But what happens is we're just working more because uh, something that should be, benefit the entire world like let's say you have robots and ai that that make half the work unnecessary that should create a paradise where everyone's working 10 hours a week and we're already happy and we all have more time to do urban agriculture and to reduce our ecological footprint but in reality because small groups of people own everything that's just going to mean that 50 percent of the population is going to be out of work and starving to death and rioting or on some kind of welfare uh and the, the problem is just the ownership so we, we need to democratize all of the ownership of the things, the means of production, quote unquote, the things that we all need. And that solves so much of it because then we are, you know, when you're a kid and you go to the grocery store and you meet the grocer and you ask, oh, where are the apples? And he tells you about the apples. Oh, you try these apples. You think that, oh, this man likes to go to the grocery store. I like to go to the grocery store. He works at the grocery store because he cares about groceries and he likes helping people. And sometimes that's true. But a lot of times he's just there because he needs to eat and, and he doesn't even want to be there. So you 
could have a society that looks a lot like our own society that has a lot of the same institutions, but the institutions are actually there to serve their purported purpose. The purpose of Uber, an Uber-like cooperative would be to provide better transportation. The purpose of social media would be to keep connected, not just to you know, incite insane uh, engagement and addiction. And I think that when it comes to food resources and pollution, everything, it's, it's the exact same problem. If people, you know, 70% of, of people uh, understand that climate change is a problem and we need to transition from fossil fuels, but we're not doing it because the people in charge of owning these companies and to control government in various ways uh, don't make that an option that we can vote on, you know? So and it will articulate here, but yeah, to me, that's just really the crux of everything is... Uh, that people don't have input into the decisions that affect them. There's a lot of, I could comment on, but I, the core one, and one of them is, oh, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. But the core one is that I think you're looking through the lens of, of how can we distribute resources so that the, the domination goes away. Distribute control over resources. Like I don't Do, need are, all the resources. I just need to be able to there shouldn't be anyone who can decide what to do with the resources that I need. I should be able to decide what to do with the proportion of resources that affect me. And I put to you that that is impossible with fossil fuels and it's going to be impossible with uranium as well. Okay. Because, because again, the I geographic, the because there's only reasons. so many places where it exists. You but can't. That's true of a lot of things. And we do through our governments, which are not democratic enough, but they can be made more democratic. We do control, you know, people in, but, you know, in one part of the U.S. have a lot of salmon and people in the other part of the U.S. have a lot of water, but they manage to distribute those in different ways, electricity, things like we that. Don't, we as individuals and as society don't depend on salmon or anything like we do fossil fuels. Right. Fossil right. fuel, the amount of energy in fossil fuels is, yeah. I don't know. It's, Everything it's, depends. Yeah. But I, still, I, I think that man, there are ways that you can manage the distribute control over resources like that here's one one, and at the end of the day i don't know it's something that people should be working on no one's working on that idea i think that's one way of going about it another way you know but because it's a dangerous technology you should also be working on getting rid of it as well so i'm not i'm not against it at all i just i'm against it maybe for a different reason than you you know oh definitely the the health and and environmental reasons are are, that's what drove me to it but right 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 one of the guardrails that we have right now is that everyone believes if we less fossil fuels means a return to the stone age, which means dying at 30 and gangrene and, and no antibiotics and, and all that stuff. They think that no fossil fuels means a worse life. I think that, I don't know, again, I don't know, but my guess is uh, we probably don't need a lot of the stuff we use energy for now. So I bet we can reduce it, but to get rid of it completely, I don't, it's very, that would be shocking to me. I'd need to see something that shows that you can sustain 8 billion people uh, on a planet without with some other form of energy. Um, if the amount of en- 8 billion yeah. is partly the result of anticipation of more energy forever, but people, people kept the population stable for a long, long time when they didn't think that, you know, until it seemed like sure. next year, there'll always be more energy than this year. And the population is set to stabilize at a certain point. I forget every continent has stabilized their population except for Africa. Africa. I think. But those projections yeah. Those projections don't count. That's only looking in the rearview mirror. That's saying mm-hmm. by how the rates of change of fertility are going, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have. It doesn't say what happens if um, the, refer, the tigers and Euphrates run dry, mm-hmm. and, and what right. happens if, right. the, if the country upstream says, 
our people are dying. We got to take all this water for ourselves. And the and mm -hmm. downstream, oh, yeah. wait, now we have nothing. Yeah. There's going to be an invasion, and that is not yeah. in those projections. Yeah, that's what the you know Canada's <laughs> the water crisis. You expect Canada to be completely uh, invaded and controlled by the U.S. in the next. Uh, yeah, because once the Ogallala Ogallala whatever aquifer yeah. runs dry, yeah, we depend on that, and we yeah. don't have to. I mean, so that's so those projections. Mm -hmm. There's no possible way from the models that they use that they could foresee a collapse. But it's very easy to imagine a collapse if yeah. an aquifer runs dry or the fish in the ocean stop. Right. You know, if, we, if, if they get below a certain density and can't reproduce, what could have been a renewable resource becomes a non-renewable resource. And the so so but so so you would favor some kind of like population uh, decreasing population voluntarily somehow over time. Well, there's many. Everyone first thinks of of China's one child, one child policy as its draconian yeah. measure, or India with yeah. the forced sterilizations. But if yeah. you look at many other countries like Costa Rica or um, Thailand or South Korea, yeah. then there are deliberate and educating women yeah. and girls is like the first thing off of everyone's off. They of just do a lot of birth control. It's like the hunter gatherer society. They do a lot of birth control, uh, some abortion and stuff like that too, and because they, they they do they don't live perfectly sustainably, but they are conscious of keeping animal populations going and not depleting resources and not overpopulating. So they do. Yeah. There's definite population control there too. Yeah. And, and not top down just through yeah. cultural. And so, yeah, I think that it would naturally happen. Will it happen but faster? Those, I mean, there are definitely pro, like, there are many places that have had programs that were about increasing freedom of choice that mm -hmm. led to lower fertility. Mm -hmm. And just no one knows about them because that's outside the guardrail of our system. Yeah. It, our system is based on growth and that, that doesn't hold, you could tell, you can have all the cases in the world and in the United States won't see them. They, they'll be like the, um, the, it's outside of their, they don't want to see it because they've they grown up in a certain culture. The, but the people with all the power, the people who own the media, the people who own all those things, are they so will always say growth so in, in population and GDP is absolutely necessary or else they're so invested in the system as it is literally and like, you know, uh, ideologically that there's no room for what we're talking about. Right. Right. Yeah. That's another thing. Solution to that is democratizing the media, cooperativizing, you know, all that stuff. That's a huge part of it. I don't think it's, it's, it's very hard to have those discussions uh, in the current ownership environment. I mean, you can definitely, but there has to be an aim to, I don't know. I think that the aim of decentralizing power has to be everywhere. Not so just, so yeah. I don't want to put off the importance to, I mean, anyone yeah. who knows any of my stuff knows yeah. I'm concerned about a civilization to collapse. And that would yeah. include billions of people dying in a short yeah. period of time. <laughs> yeah. That's what pollution brings. Yeah. Also, the reason we have such a hard time getting off of it is that we have a dominance hierarchy that that they yeah. that is powered by power. I mean, yeah. raw physics power, energy. Well, they don't want power. you know the types of alternatives that we're talking about, like urban agriculture, for example. It would reduce people's need to work as much at their jobs, which would raise labor costs, which would lower profits. Like all that stuff has to be off the table. Like they, you know because we live in this dominance hierarchy society, this minority owner, people owning things that majority of people need, that's what we're stuck with because that's and what gives power. Even if it'll destroy them in the end, they can't even 
And yep. since the Industrial Revolution, that has yep. increasingly, almost exclusively now, comes from fossil fuels. Even food, which could be solar powered, is mostly fossil fuel so, powered. Yeah. So that's is in in as long as we depend on fossil fuels, nothing else will change. Because I just I think it's the other way around. Because I think if we get rid of fossil fuels, let's say manage to do that, you wave a magic wand. I always do those thought experiments, right? Uh-huh. You wave a magic wand. I haven't done this. You know, I haven't really. Thought, you know, I'm thinking about this for the first time. But we wave a magic wand. Fossil fuels disappear. But we and, still, well, it has to happen over enough time that the population just as well. Right. That right. 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 But we managed to replace it with something sustainable in, in, overnight. Photosynthesis. But, sure. Yeah. Like there's some kind of there's some kind of magical thing that means we don't require any energy like energy becomes immediately available to anyone who just wants it without have anyone being able to control it and it doesn't pollute oh wait yeah. let me let me restate it yeah our need for energy has dropped to below what the earth gets from the sunlight powering sun. photosynthesis right. of plants so we can eat plants but not faster than the plants grow but what's going to happen is because you still have a capitalist economy with unlimited owners allowed to amass unlimited amounts of wealth and then they are able to control governments with campaign donations and all these in other ways um you're still going to have an economy that doesn't want you to spend time doing your urban agriculture that doesn't want you to have more freedom that doesn't want you know there's still gonna be all the same incentives to work you to the bone to keep the all these options off the table in other ways yeah so i'm get, not offering uh, peace but i'm not still, offering peace on earth you still have the same hierarchies and the same domination that you have today. I don't think it would change very much. It would just stave off collapse, environmental collapse, which is wonderful, which we definitely want. Yeah. I don't think it would I'm solve not, a lot of other. I'm not offering peace on earth. What I'm offering yeah. is that my best awareness of earth's carrying capacity. What do, what yeah. do you think earth's carrying capacity is? I like really if we weren't drawing down on, on, on non-renewable resources like fossil fuels, I don't know. I just haven't investigated this stuff enough. Okay. So the numbers I come up, I, I, I've, yeah. I trust are like 3 billion. Yeah. Okay. So that's so, a change from today. That's more than That's half. significantly lower than it is today. Yeah. And the longer we go over the carrying capacity, the yeah. lower that keeps lowering the carrying capacity because we're using up stuff. Right. So, yeah. Oh, so I got to tell the story about, um, um, People, this is a gross oversimplification, yeah. but a friend of mine was once on a, uh, and, and people are going to misinterpret this, so I got to say a bit afterward, but a friend of mine yeah. uh, was talking to some hunter once, and they see some elk in a distance. This is in Idaho, I think. Huh? And the hunter says, yeah. how many elk do you see over there? And he says, yeah. about 100, my friend. Yeah. And yeah. the hunter says, yeah, I've lived here for a long time. And I know yeah. that around here, there's enough vegetation to last about 75 over the winter. Mm. So my friend says, I guess that means 25 are going to die. Mm. And the hunter says, no, 25 are going to live. Because as the winter comes, say November, a hundred right. of them are still eating. Right. It's and after fall. a little while, there's enough for only for 74 over the winter. And there's still a hundred. Right. Then there's yeah. enough for 73 over the winter. And eventually 25 make it barely. Right, 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 so right. So you, you get slingshot down. Yeah. Now, some, there's other issues because humans are different than elk and yeah. it's different than just a food supply. Uh, also, we have a huge thing that we're creating pollution that will last even after 
we fixed all the yeah. But the, um, the picture is that if there is a collapse, the longer we are able to stay above the carrying capacity, the steeper and deeper the collapse is. Right. Right. So your magic wand and the, adjusting, yeah, that's billions of people dying in a short period of time. That's what yeah. I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know the solution to that. And this is, yeah, I don't know. Like well, what what th that's yeah. what your stuff is. That's what your stuff opened up is that <laughs> it, it clarified that the control over the fossil fuels and the belief, yeah. the culture, the belief system that that creates is what's keeping us stuck. And why we, I think it goes beyond the fossil fuels. It goes, it's just the control of any resources of all the, yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's yeah. the only thing, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a major it's thing. Yes. It's just one of the things, but yeah, but I want to think about it in a, in a broader way, but yeah, it's a very major important focal point and anyone who controls uh, fossil fuels has control over it. You know, as Kissinger said, you control the food, you control the people. And that's the same of, you know, with energy, obviously. Um, yeah. I can't believe you're not saying, hmm? I can't believe you're not saying, Oh, I didn't realize how my stuff was so valuable. <laughs> oh no, I don't know. That's how I see it. It's, that's what I'm, it's the logical conclusion of it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's the answer to uh, uh, the dawn of everything's question. Yeah. Is why that, we're I mean, stuck. Cause we absent fossil fuels, we would be, we, no. we'd have reached to something like a billion, two billion, maybe 3 billion people. We would still have progress, but we would have leveled off at some point, mm -hmm. but everything past there is basically under control of the people with the fossil fuels, especially because of the green revolution, which enabled people to, to grow that would not have been possible to grow without fossil fuels. So it's like the, 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 the news got tighter. Mm. Or like the choke collar that we're on. Yeah, I just don't see the people who own fossil fuels. I mean, it's the US government sort of controls a lot of fossil fuels. There's all private uh, companies, but I don't know. It's hard. I, I, I can't disaggregate that just from general control over everything uh, by minorities of people. And that's one of the resources. Food is another resource, of course. All that stuff ties into fossil fuels. So I see that. Yeah, uh, fossil, because, yeah. Food, because food has become industrialized, Mm -hmm. requiring fossil fuel yeah. inputs food it's is controlled yeah it's completely fossil fuel heavy but again i don't know the ways of reducing that without killing off a huge percentage of the population like how do you do that we barely have time yeah <laughs> so i've reduced my so if by the online calculators in a two and a half year period i dropped 90 over 90 percent yeah to where mine is my a couple of years ago my my global footprint was roughly the same as the average Indian, India, Indian, mm -hmm. my quality of life improved. Mm -hmm. Now, people who are poor, they're not polluting nearly as much. People who are rich can reduce significantly more than I have. Right. right. And they're it's the people that not, really matter. Just by not flying as one huge one. Yeah. Not flying. Yeah. And, and, but, but the big thing is the mindset shift that mm -hmm. won't happen as long as people believe that, without fossil fuels, we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. But you need to provide a model. So, cause you know, you, I, I, I suspect that your individual story can't be replicated by most people. So how can you provide a model that would inspire people to make those changes in a way, like can convince people that this is going to make everybody's life, you know, you, you need to convince them like, this is going to make your life better. 
to do this, not worse. Yeah. So, so most provide people... a model that's going to encourage people to want to make those changes in their individual lives, because I don't, you know, I think individual things can change if they're exercised on a mass scale, which we rarely see. Uh, it's usually at the level of public policy that you can get actually things done. So How can, step you, one is you have, is people believe most people would believe that what I've already done is impossible. Mm-hmm. So you only need one counterexample to show that it's not impossible. What's well, obviously possible for you. So, but is it possible? So that's, that's, who else is it possible? That's right. a lot of people have that knee-jerk reaction of, mm-hmm. oh, well, you're privileged. You have, you have access to resources that other people don't. But that's why my I point know. is if – I don't know. You tell me, like, is this possible for everybody else? I don't know. I'm asking you. What is possible yeah. is for them to change in their lives on the scale that I have in my life. But for them, it's going to be in their way. But for the most mm-hmm. polluting people, that change can be much, much greater. I mean, one person who's right. got a yacht, sell that yacht, and the drop for them is much greater than mine. And they're the well, people that matter the most. Aren't those the people who are the – but do they matter the most? Because they're a small minority of people. Like some people with yachts is a small minority of people. And if you cut out all the yachts and all the private jets, it's a small minority of people who do all that stuff. How much does that change the global picture? Does it change it in a huge way or not? So it's every, about the here's, lots of, here's lots of examples. Cars, which average people are using, you know, that sounds like it's probably more besides industrial stuff. Right? Well, here's some big things. Yeah. Um, if everyone can go for, say, a week without a refrigerator, yeah, <laughs> then which most of the world can, and everyone before a hundred years ago could, yeah, I, like, I don't know how how am I going to go without a refrigerator for a week? I don't know. You have to learn how to do it. That's super complicated. I need, but you, so if you want me to do that, you need to provide me some kind of manual. Like if you're going to write a hold book, on, hold on. I'm not. I'm not suggesting maybe, you do that. What I'm telling yeah. you is that if everyone could go right yeah. now, if if in America. Some community yeah. loses power for an hour. Yeah. People lose their shit. Right. <laughs> if you lose it for a week, people fucking overthrow the government. Okay. Yeah. Or I mean, they, they won't, but they'll want to. But they'll figure out. Yeah. But if you could go for, say, a week, the amount of, then we could lower the size of the electric grid. We don't need peaker plants. We can mm-hmm. use intermittent power sources like wind and nuclear, which, by the way, are not, those are all fossil fuel driven as well. So, mm-hmm. A lot of people listening to this so far have been thinking, well, if you have um, solar and wind distributed, then suddenly you have power distributed. But solar and wind require fossil fuels to build, to manufacture, to install, and then they put it when you you get rid of them. So they are not – that still keeps the control in fossil fuel interests. But if we were resilient so that we we could go for, say, a week, we we don't need peaker plants. We don't need nuclear. And that's a major shift. If yeah. we make cities so that people can not live in suburbs and exurbs and we can let yeah. highways go away, then right. we don't need the number of container right. ships drops precipitously. Yeah. And so all these things start, yeah. you start seeing systemic change. Yeah. But, but the how, systemic change only yeah. must, systemic change begins with personal change. I'm not saying that personal change is enough, but it's necessary. You need personal awareness, but you're yeah. going to need to, I don't know, I always think of, things in terms of the incentives built into whatever system you have. So I feel like you're going to need a more effective way would be enough people to influence government to make changes happen that way because change the economic system change because just people on their own, not enough people are going to be doing that to 
to change things on a massive enough scale. Like we're talking about how we're going to change the way we build cities, change the way we do this. This is policy stuff. Like not enough people can just do this. That's what, it, so know, that's where, be, that's what my strategy, interested in. Yeah. That was my strategy before re- reading your stuff. So my strategy is, yeah. <laughs> is to yeah. one, to be a role model. I do not believe in leadership by example in this area because leadership by example is it's, you have to live by the, you can't, lead someone yeah. to live by values that you live the opposite of. So I have to live, right. I have to do my best to live sustainably yeah. for credibility and integrity. Yeah. And so, yeah. and to learn what it takes to do these things. Yeah. Then there's also the Spodic method, which is if you listen to a bunch of podcast episodes, you'll, yeah. you'll hear that I walk people through this process of mm-hmm. giving them the mindset shift to where they right. act on their values. And, and my target audience, uh, my target, the people I try to bring on as guests there's two, two kinds. One is people like you who are like, this is really fascinating. This is very useful. Yeah. Like I want to meet, learn more about this person and bring them to my audience. Yeah. But yeah. I also try to bring influential people. So CEOs, uh, elected officials, athletes, uh, movie stars, because they're, that triggers community. If mm-hmm. someone who is the center of a community changes, then suddenly everyone feels like, yeah. oh, now I know someone who's done this. And once you've had a yeah, few people, a like five people in your community change, then it's much easier for you to change. And so they have I, disproportionate influence, positions yeah. of power. Or no, whatever, so yeah. the Spodic method makes that mindset, it doesn't make, but it usually often that leads to that mindset shift. And then if I work with a person long enough, then they begin that process of continual improvement where each step builds on the one before. It's in another period and another time, there was nonviolent civil disobedience. Well, that's mm-hmm. still, that still works today, but not in the environment. It's not, it's a solution, but for a different problem. Mm. But this, I believe is a tactic that will act in this area like that did there. And just like at the time people were like, wait a minute, you, you want us to not use weapons against the British? Mm-hmm. Speaking <laughs> of Gandhi yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or Martin Luther King, you know, wait, yeah. we got to fight back. Yeah, yeah. But this technique of not, meeting with force, but with civil disobedience, it worked. Yeah. Of yeah. course it didn't solve all the world's problems. You need mass media. You need, yeah. Depends. It was effective in, in, in many ways in those, yeah, where so we're trying to fight back with force was counterproductive. Yeah. Nowadays, the idea, like this, I talk with a lot, of, a lot of people, the idea of overthrowing the government by force or any of this stuff is nonsense today, given the amount of power that they have and, doesn't matter. You can have all the militias and guns in the world. You're not going to get anywhere near the, uh, you know, over, <laughs> taking over the U.S. government or any other government probably uh, that way. Yeah. So the mindset shift that I have in mind is, is roughly that mm-hmm. for people to believe that the more that I live sustainably, the better my life will get mm-hmm. and the better society will become. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. everyone moves in that direction. Now, it's hard to imagine, but less hard for me to imagine because I've been living it. And sure. a lot of people around me. I've walked through this process. So there's yeah. a lot, I mean, people, increasingly people are saying to me things like, you know, Josh, I, I'm really surprised to say this, but I think I can see the last flight that I'll ever take. I see that it's yeah. messing my life up huh. to fly. I don't want to yeah. do it anymore. And yeah. I didn't want to be that way, but it's actually making my life better not to do that. I yeah. was just meeting with someone today and she was like, I can't believe how much plastic I have because yeah. she doesn't like it. Yeah. And that it's like normal for me it's more swimming downstream than upstream okay and 
If it works, yeah. But if you see it working, everything. I don't see how you don't see that. Like this huge, the, the, how much <laughs> of a hurdle it was, absent anthropology, mm -hmm. and awareness of what the source is of our culture being this dominance hierarchy held by this geographically bound resource. Because I don't think that the source of the, our dominance hierarchy is just fossil fuel. I think it's a lot of things, and that's one of them. It's a big one because it ties into so many other things. But like I was saying, I just don't think if you conquered that, that that would change everything. You need to just work, and everyone has to work on whatever they are capable of, whatever they know how to do. So you're doing something interesting. It sounds like you're having influence. So by all, you have to go forward with it. Who knows? Maybe it can just become a giant wave and, and be a huge defining uh, movement. But for me, I just, I'm thinking about how do we get the idea? So, you know, why did I start my show? This is, you know, something we were talking about before. Uh, politics is a bunch of words and terms without any definitions. It's words that pick each other. The word socialism, capitalism, the market, government, left, right. They're all terms that we use all the time. And you can't, if you sit down and try to think, what does this word mean? Most of us can't define any of these words. And I realized that once, the reason I started the show at the beginning was just, I'm in Canada. We have a public healthcare system, which used to be rated uh, one of the top three in the world. Like when I was a kid growing up, we'd see commercials on TV saying, Canada, this year we were second in the world next to Finland and Japan. It was always those top three. I, don't, I forget if this is a public service announcement or what it was, but I was always like, yeah, we have a great system. And any encounter that I had with the system was decent and people that I knew, you know, good boarding. And then in the 90s, they just slashed the system to bits mm -hmm. and they never put the money back in the system. They said, oh, well, we have to gut the system because we have this deficit. And it's the only way that we can save the system is by destroying it. And they, <laughs> you know, they led people to believe that, well, we're going to cut, make all these cuts now because we're overspending. But then once we're going to amass more, get rid of the deficit and have budget surplus, then we'll put it back into the healthcare system. But what happened is they started getting a budget surplus and then they're like, well, we'll put half of it back into social programs and the rest we're going to give us tax cuts. Yay. And I was like, wait a second, how can you fix the healthcare system if mm -hmm. you're giving it away as tax cuts? And then what happened over time is that the healthcare system just began to collapse. It's just, it's a catastrophe nowadays. I mean, I'd still rather have a Canadian healthcare system than an American healthcare system, unless you're very wealthy, but um, they just starved the system to death. So in Quebec, where I live, people vote based on everything is just identity politics. Yeah. Like people have lost the idea of voting for your material interests. You're just like, so in Quebec in particular, because you have, it was a, it's a Francophone uh, province. Mm -hmm. Most of the people here speak French, but there was always a minority of people that were Anglophone that were from, you know, British, it was the Brit, you know, Britain colonists versus the French colonists and the British were the ruling class. Uh, so you had this separatist movement. Uh, French people tended to be in the lower class and the, the English were tended to be in the higher class. And there was this nationalist movement. Anyways, the history, it's changed by now. Uh, French, most of the business people and people in power are all Francophone nowadays. But you, our politics is completely defined by English versus French or federalist versus uh, nationalist. Mm -hmm. And you have people like somebody who's a single mom on welfare. A kid is going to our, our great subsidized uh, daycare service and she's voting for the right wing party. That's going to, that promised to cut uh, daycare subsidies because they're the federalist party and she's Anglophone. So I'm voting for this. People just left all over the place, just voting against their own material interests. 
because they identify with this, you know, or other group. So I was like, I, this is driving me nuts. Or my, you know, I, someone in my family would say, oh, well, I'm going to vote for the leader of the conservative party because I want our public healthcare system to be better funded and to work better. So somebody, it's like saying, I'm going to vote, you know, for Donald Trump because I want universal healthcare. Like that's, that's, you know, I saw all kinds of people saying stuff like this. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to just do an episode and explain what left and right is and why that's important in politics and stop thinking in terms of nationalist or federalist or I'm this identity group or that identity group. Start thinking about what these parties represent. You know, if you want more public investment, you don't vote for a right wing party. That doesn't make sense. That's the opposite of what they do. So I sat down and I thought, okay, let's explain left and right. But I'm like, whoa, whoa what do left and right mean? And I'm like, hey, you know what? I, I've been reading politics for 20 years, but I not sure. Let's go read a dictionary. And I'm like, no, that doesn't seem very, that's a loosey goosey definition. What's this? And I'm like, okay, level, let's read some scholarly articles. And I'm like, nobody knows what these terms mean. Nobody knows what any terms mean. It's all just gibberish. It's nonsense. And I realized like that's one of the, you know, if you imagine surgeons or engineers didn't have precise terms for, you know, oh, what's the name of that blood vessel? I don't know that one over there. Here, just get that one over there. <laughs> oh, okay. And, you know, people are bleeding to death and everyone would die and buildings would be collapsing left and right. And that's what politics is. Nobody knows how anything works. People, again, like in the US, nine, like you'd be surprised, you know, Republicans hate monopolies more than Democrats for some reason. Republicans hate uh, money and politics almost as much as Democrats do. So you have these group of people who hate each other and think that they're, you know, oh, they're barbarians. But guess what? They have the same exact ideas as a lot of Republicans want socialized medicine. They just don't, they don't associate, they think that the Republican Party is going to give that to them somehow because they're thinking of politics as identity and not as uh, actual policy. And I'm going to go into the evolutionary reasons for that in my show at some point. But I want to give words meaning. I want people to understand what, you know, how to think in terms of uh, actual categories, actual concrete things versus just who sounds like you and who talks like you. There's a lot of psychological studies and political studies, political science studies done uh, on voters and how they vote just based on how someone talks or speaks uh, rather than on uh, what their policies are. And they just infer, oh, well, this person talks like me and speaks like me, or I can relate to him or her on some level that is important to me. Therefore, they must want the same things I want. And we all sort of do this because it's just a hero. So we just don't have, you know, I love Bernie Sanders. I would assume that when it comes to sex workers, he would vote the same way I do. But guess what? He voted badly on SESTA-FOSTA, like this internet sex bill related to that, that screwed up the, a lot of sex workers' lives. So you just have a natural inclination to think that the person who looks and talks like you is going to do as you say. But anyways, made this whole um, show based out of that. And then part of that is to explain where I want people to think about hierarchy and because left and right are about hierarchy and equality. And that's what they mean. If you look at the history of those terms uh, from the French Revolution on, but then once you see it in those terms, and then it got confused during the Cold War, but once, because the Soviet Union was this horrible hierarchy, but they were established that hierarchy in the name of equality. So they didn't want you thinking so much about hierarchy versus equality anymore. They're trying to make you think about other things. It's more like, uh, you know, material equality. And they didn't want you to think so much about um, uh, political hierarchy because it was such a, you know, entrenched, corrupt political hierarchy. Anyhow, and, and the United States also, the, the capitalist countries didn't want you thinking about hierarchy versus equality either because they're, they're just wanting you to think about freedom. You know, it's freedom versus, so, you know, the American paradigm is like, well, you have to have more freedom, but that comes at the expense of more economic equality. And the 
the Soviets were saying, well, you want more economic equality, but that comes at the price of freedom. And so they both, both sides of the Cold War kind of agreed on this sort of ideological paradigm that we've sort of been stuck with. But nobody wanted to talk about, hey, what about getting rid of political hierarchy, which both sides are very happy with um, uh, in different ways. Uh, a corporate hierarchy is a political hierarchy. It's a decision-making hierarchy. It's top-down. It's a dictatorship. Um, of course, you have the, the option to leave the dictatorship if you have other means of sustaining yourself. That's exactly like, a you know, it's a work hierarchy. Why, do, why does your boss, why is a corporation a dominance hierarchy? Because there are people who have no better alternative than to work at that place. Like if you judge, you know, oh, well, if I quit this place, I don't have a better place to work. At. I'm going to stick here and just do what the boss wants me to do all day because my other alternatives are all worse than that, as much as I hate this job or whatever. And, you know, people might actually discover that they have other alternatives, but like, as, as you know, you're discovering in your life, uh, what am I going, what am I getting at with all of this? Um, oh God, I just lost myself. I keep doing this. Um, how do I tie this back to what you were saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm going to editorialize that you just yeah. went through several episodes, uh, like, Yes. 10 episodes of your, of your show. Just going through all that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, no problem if everyone just pauses right now, this conversation and goes and watches all of those just, because yeah. the changes in perspective, I mean, you touched on things just now that when processed makes so much makes sense. And how much effort did you put into, I, I I've heard you say, I think on other podcasts of yeah. like how much you had to read and understand to get, what the difference is between left and right and the story yeah. of, I mean, you just alluded to the French revolution, but like literally left and right of the yeah. room. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> how much, and you also alluded to uh, politics is not just what happens, what people we call politicians do. Right. It's group decision-making. Yeah. And so a work at first, the first couple of times you talked about work situations, political, I thought, yeah, well, it was politics work. But then I was like, Oh, I yeah. It really connects a lot. So it's the same dynamics. Like in our culture, we separate what I call pro private from public politics. But we think of as politics. When I say the word politics on TV, when someone says the word politics on TV, we're thinking of the government. There's Capitol Hill. There's a maybe a state government, maybe a municipal government. But it's always the government, right, with the politicians. Mm -hmm. But they for, there's also something called private politics, which has the exact same dynamics and the exact same everything. It's just that it's not the state. When I go to my, you know, what we call office politics in the office, it's all just about as soon as you have a group of people and there are decisions to be made that affect more than one person, you have politics. And you realize that the same tactics that people use to get their way in your family or in a or the same dynamics that gives, for example, parents have power over their children. Why? Well, there's developmental issues, obviously. But let's say like you have an 18 year old, 17 year old kid and, and their parents. What makes the parents have more power than the kids is the parents own the home and, and, and the food and they control access to, to the resources that the 17 year old needs to live. So until the 17 year old can go live on their own, they are subject to the whims of the parent for better or worse. Now, that's the same dynamic that is in a government, right? The government controls things that you need to live. They could be, you know, the means of coercion There's all these things. So and the way you get concessions out of the government is similar to the way you get concessions out of your boss at work, the way you get concessions out of your parents at home, the way you get concessions out of your friend group when you're, you know, making decisions in different situations. So we need to, you know, there's some things that we need to separate into separate categories that don't belong together. And there's some things that we need to merge together in the same category. Then all these things, the whole point of my show is to give you the power to see things that will give you more power to act. That's the whole point. 
Yeah, you in know, many areas of life. It's not just every who area. to vote for. Yeah, it's, exactly. From A to yeah. Z. Like, yeah, you want to influence your, in any, you know, at your workplace, you want to influence in your home, you want anything in your relationship. I mean, I don't really talk about that as much, but it's the same sort of thing. There's bargaining in relationships. And this is terrible. Like, well, there's a book called Sex is Better Under Socialism, I think it's called. And the scholar, what she did is she studied East and West Germany, right? And I wouldn't call East Germany socialism, but uh, because there was a welfare state in East Germany and women, uh, therefore, women were not dependent on men to have babies. You could have a baby as a single mom and uh, uh, get state support that way. Therefore, women and, you know, these are the, basically the same society until we get to 1948 or whenever the partition was. Right. So you have the same culture, the same history, more or less the same economic background, not exactly, but similar enough. Uh, and then you just have this break in 1948. And so you studied the how many orgasms women have, what they look for in a male partner, what they like. So the, the women in East Germany had more orgasms, insisted on having better lovers who are better at giving them pleasure, insisted on long term partners who are more of a good person. Whereas people in East Germany, West Germany were look, put up with worse lovers because they were looking more for wealth and for uh, somebody that could help support their family. Uh, you know, even though, you know, we think of West Germany as a, as, as a sort of welfare state, well, compared to East Germany, it was less so, especially, you know, uh, in the early days until more recently. But so you, in relationships, those dynamics of politics apply there too. It applies everywhere. Bargaining power. You'll see sometimes you have, you have a spouse, you have a partner, you sometimes will put up with things that you don't want to, because if you don't, then she'll withhold sex from you, or she might withhold something else that you need, or you might want, you know, she might depend on you for something. So there's all these dynamics that just apply everywhere. Uh, and it's important to see that and understand that. Yeah. And make you a more effective human being in political sense uh, and public politics and private politics as well. Yeah. yeah, I'm anticipating that that um, egalitarian cultures probably have really great sex because <laughs> I think if, so. If if you can walk away, then you're going to walk away, which means everyone's going to have to practice. Everyone's going to have to be really good. Yeah, or I else, so. or else be lonely. You know, if you think about human female sexuality, like it's not just it's not that easy, right? Like it takes sensitivity, it takes awareness, it takes paying attention, listening, emotional listening uh and and emotional comfort it's not just pressing you know men it's a lot easier right in, in some ways i mean we're complicated too but and probably one of the reasons is because that evolved is because you know why would he evolve such a pain in the ass you know sexual organs that that require so much uh you know there's so much a psychological aspect to it and it's so complicated to 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 you know have really good sex or to be really good at it well because the man who's willing to pay attention to the woman that way and to, to give in those ways and be skilled at that is going to be someone who's probably going to put a lot of effort into the other things as well. Right. Like helping uh, raise the kids and, and do all kinds of other things uh, for, for providing with the food and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. You've been getting me into a lot more anthropology. So I've been reading about like Sarah Hardy and, and stuff about alopecia oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how yeah. we didn't have single parents or even nuclear families for most of our human history. It was no. a, a village raising the child. You that's the reason we became human is because chimpanzees have what you call the gray ceiling, right? Because a chimpanzee woman, female, won't another, if she lets her child outside of her sight, another man or woman might just kill the kid because they're seen as kind of competition. But Chimpanzees. Yeah. Uh -huh. So there's no alloparenting there. 
But, and so as a result, like it takes, I think, 13 million calories or something to raise a child uh, into, into being a self-sufficient uh, person. And you can't get at that if you're just a single mom, which is what I think chimpanzees are more or less. They get some help, but not that much. But what humans were able to break that gray ceiling, the, the, si- the gray ceiling is the size of your brain because, you know, mm-hmm. brains take up a lot of calories. So if you're just a single person without any outside support, you can't break that gray ceiling. You can't acquire enough calories to feed a child properly. But once we start alloparenting, first the mother, the menopausal mother will help raise the child. And then you have brother, the aunts and uncles and other unrelated people. And hunter-gatherer, um, people used to think that hunter-gatherer bands were composed mostly of related people. And that's what the, the basis of society was just being r- related to each other. And uh, which is true in tribal societies, but it's not true in hunter-gatherers. In hunter-gatherers, people are very unrelated to each other. I forget there's numbers, but they were shocked at just how unrelated uh, a group of hunter-gatherers would be. But they all share childcare, which takes the burden off of everyone. And if you, you know, anthropologists would often talk to their, you know, hunter-gatherer friends and just like, oh, you know, it's really hard to raise kids. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Easy. They just go play at the big daycare all day long and they hang out and there's one or two people hanging out watching them. And yeah, so putting it. the putting yep. the East German system to shame. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Putting all the welfare systems in. Yeah, and like a single mother today is able to, uh, not everyone, but you're able to feed a kid because you're paying, even a single mom usually has many other people helping them because they're paying daycare to help them, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're, it's really stressful. It sucks. Like the worst thing, you know, even two parents, I know you have kids, having just two parents raise a kid sucks. Like if you don't have friends with kids your age, if you don't have, grandparents it's just hell i've seen a lot of people raise kids in different conditions and people some people are not great parents on their own but they had a big community and they end up being great parents because the community is helping to raise their kid whereas other people who might be great people and imaginative and energetic just one or two people on their own they suck they're unhappy the kids frustrated like it sucks yeah we're not meant to live that way yeah i'm really glad to learn i mean this is just a touch of 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 what i know about anthropology is not a lot but it's (laughs) incredibly relevant to our lives i, I had no idea so, because we don't you know if you're somebody who's interested in changing the world or ha- making the world a better place you have to read anthropology because anthropology will show you the breadth of different ways that people can organize and have organized in all sorts of ways over the years over the millennia and not necessarily that we necessarily want to copy anyone in particular but it shows you the, the range of possibilities and until the 1960s, when they start, had the Man the Hunter conference, it was called, where they discovered the uh, sort of immediate return hunter-gatherers. In, in a, you know, there were people who knew about them, but they, it wasn't like wild, wildly publicized. We we're like, oh, my God, you can have male-female equality. It was thought that, the, you know, that our n- natural condition was male dominance. Well, it doesn't look like that anymore. It looks like our natural condition is gender equality. Um, now, still and different roles. but Different roles, yeah. Yeah, this has been I guess a lot of people... A lot of young you know, people watch my stuff and they're like, well, isn't it still oppressive that they have different genders? Like, isn't gender in itself oppressive? And if you look at those, uh, that's an interesting question. If you, you know, something we wouldn't have thought of before. So they didn't do a lot of studies about that before. Like it's a sort of recent type of question. But if you look at those immediate return societies, there are roles. But the difference is that there's nothing to rebel against in those roles because you don't have to conform to those roles. So Helga Vierich, you can, there's a video where she talks, you know, I haven't seen anything written about this. I just saw her talk on some video um, where she says there was a woman in a uh, Juansi, like the, no, anyway, one of the Kalahari 
uh, hunter-gatherer groups. And she decided to be a shaman, which was previously thought to be a male-only occupation. Like, if you'll, you'll read that. Only men can become shamans. It's not true. It's just that women didn't want to be shamans. Well, this woman wanted to be a shaman. And she was. And nobody blank, blinked. Nobody cared. And she was also masculine in some other respects. And but she so she just did some male things, but then and she still considered herself a woman and did woman things. And men routinely will go do women's things when it's convenient or necessary. Lots of male childcare, for example. There's books I think uh, uh, about fathers. Uh, anyways, Frank Marlowe. There's a book about fathers and hunting gathering, um, and women will do men's work whenever it's things. So you have those roles and. One of the reasons humans did so well, it's theorized, uh, as a species, is because we had this uh, these, this economic specialization, because that's what gender roles essentially are. They're just economic specialization uh, in hunter-gatherers. And Neanderthals didn't. And so apparently that's one of the things that gave humans an advantage. But gender specialization is only oppressive if it's, uh, not invol- if it's mandatory, right? If you can do whatever you want, then it's not, it's just a, you know, then there's no problem. So gender in itself isn't oppressive. It's gender roles that are enforced. And no, if somebody's making fun of you for violating a gender norm or somebody's beating you up or killing you, that's, that's oppressive, but you don't see that in those societies. So there's, yeah, it's really interesting. To me, this is illustrating how much more desirable the freedom and equality is that's available when we're not in, in, in a dominance hierarchy and undermining the dominance hierarchy. You're distributing the resource. I'm undermining the need for it. And I'm focusing on, I am focusing on one area. And I think I'm, I know after this conversation, I'm going to be thinking of how come it's not registering with him, how important yeah. this is. <laughs> I think it might be because I'm thinking of um, if we, if we get back to how it was in 1700 before we really started polluting. Yeah. Well, that was before the French revolution, before the American revolution. So there was a lot of inequality and you're like, well, there's a lot of inequality, but I'm well, thinking, yeah, but I'm thinking that's we could avoid billion, billions of people dying. And so the bill, like we wow. still have lots of things to yeah. solve at that point. Yeah. But there's one big thing that's, that's I, like, yeah. And I just don't know. I don't know enough about the the issue to, to really have an opinion that much, but I think, I don't know, like on the other side of the issue is one of the things that has given us a lot of freedom. So if we look at our societies today, I haven't talked about it on the show much, but I will, you can see that we've actually been moving towards, and I feel like that's some, something that humans have been trying to do for a long time is move towards a society that resembles egalitarian hunter gatherers more. Mm. We like having those freedoms. We like having that yeah. independence. And because we've had a welfare state, we actually see a lot of that happen. So, for example, like that East Germany example, right? You see that that welfare state created a lot more gender equality than had existed before. And also, we don't have tribalism. Like most of us, you know, we don't have these family lineages anymore because we don't need to control property with our families anymore. Those tribes no longer exist. We don't. uh, So our last, you know, people have those combined last names. Your last name doesn't matter anymore as it used to. Um, we have a lot more sexual freedom and promiscuity or whatever. I don't, I don't mean to use it negatively, uh, that word. Uh, and just like egalitarian hunter gatherers tend to have a lot more sex and be more free about sex. Like they know that sex causes problems, extramarital sex 
uh, in some societies it's frowned on more than in others. There's some po- weird polyamorous societies in the hunter gatherers, but it's, it, they know that it causes trouble. So it's sort of frowned upon to be cheating, but they're open about it. Um, and I think divorce is really easy. Divorce is easy. Yeah. They have serial monogamy. You know, we used to think like, Oh, you know, in, in ancient society, people were just married and the man dominated the woman all the life. No, they had serial monogamy the way that we do. Uh, people stay together for four or five, six years. Some people stay together for more and they get divorced. It's really easy to get divorced. And you go somewhere else and you meet someone else. Um, so we, and it's not it, a progression. Like it's not like hmm? to go for like they were stone age and we're modern and we're better than them because of that. No, it's just, we're go like, th- it just changes back and forth. Yeah. You can go back, you can go forth. You can, well, all- and if your environment changes to where suddenly there's some yeah. resource that can be controlled, it's going to change your society is going to change. And we then- resemble, we like David Graeber talked about a little bit in the book, but we, if we look at the like, immediate return hunter gatherers, he doesn't talk about them, but he was talking about other native Americans. But if we look at immediate return hunter gatherers, for example, and we look at their attitude towards sex, towards religion, towards family, towards freedom, we would all relate to that a hundred times more than what we could relate to what our literal ancestors were doing a hundred, 200 years ago. You know, like your great, great grandfather, my great, great grandfather living in the mountains of uh, Morocco. Uh, they, like I would have much more in common with an African hunter gatherer than I would with my own great, great, great grandfather. Or, you know, if you're European, even worse, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's just not, it's not backwards and forwards. It's just conditions. So for me, it's really important to try to generate conditions that incentivize equality and freedom. And I just don't know, like, if you take away all the energy or a big chunk of the energy, do we end up in conditions that make it almost impossible to have egalitarian society? Because then there's a scarcity of resources. And then some people are going to be dominating those resources. Oh, we have to, we have to lower our need for energy at the same time. Yeah, that, that's a huge, yeah, exactly. It's a huge transition. And I think to, to get to that transition, you're going to need democratization of power in general. You're going to have to get rid of this sort of corporate profit driven society to begin with. You're going to have to have a free and egalitarian form of government, something, you know, some kind of libertarian socialist society. So I'm, you know, my approach to all of this is, you know, you're focusing on the uh, fossil fuels and, and sustainable lifestyle, which I don't think is bad in any way. I think that's good. Like that's what you know about and you're living that. So you have unique experiences that you should and and it's it's valuable to share but for me i just think about the whole world as a whole and and how you want to get to more democratization of everything um as a solution i think which kind of would head in the same direction as what you're talking about let me all right let me let me put it this way yeah imagine the supply of fossil fuel starts decreasing and Mm -hmm. my understanding is that we have reached and we are past this we still have plenty to go if mm-hmm. we don't care about pollution, yeah, but it's less and less every year. And yeah. monetary supply, we may fund more extraction, but generally it's going to go down. Yeah, that means that if we if if our need remains high, but the supply mm-hmm. drops, Price the, is it's going to get a tighter and tighter. The, the control is yeah. going to be more and more important. Yeah, is that going to lead to more or less democracy? Oh, that's much more hierarchy is going to be there because you have people much more dependent, and you know people who own it have much more bargaining power. So if we keep growing Unless, the economy well, to need more yeah. energy, but the supply of energy keeps dropping, democracy oh. is going to shrink and shrink and shrink. And we're going to oh, get yeah, yeah. warlords and things like that. Okay. So there I agree with you a million percent. Like you have to get away from that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. We got to drop you our consumption. If you can find alternatives 
sources of energy or less need for energy less to begin need. what you're talking about yeah, yeah you are getting out of that whole maze you know that that whole hamster wheel and it's the same you know again if you can figure out if you could figure out how to grow your own food in your backyard and you could figure out how to build your own house out of shipping containers and you could figure out all this stuff the yeah. amount of money that you need becomes much 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 lower yes. and you can yes. save your yeah. boss and you can escape all that stuff. Like that's something that people are thinking about more and more nowadays because things are getting more expensive and rents are exploding in every urban center in, in, in the Western world, at least. Uh, so yeah, people are trying to figure out how to live in these different ways. Uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's what I'm talking. That's why, that's why I kept feeling more free. Yeah. Because because people, yeah, you're not, you don't need as much money to live. You don't need as much dependence on a boss to live. You don't need, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that in my life too. Like, times when you're more poor you have more free time and you can use that time i can sew my socks i can sew my pants i can fix all i can do all this stuff and yeah. so i have to buy new pants like one of the reasons you buy new pants is because i don't have time to sew them anymore because i'm too busy right like yeah. yeah let me let me substitute not it may be poor but it's less need for money so right. less need right, right and yeah, poor is just relative to your ability to uh, your needs yeah yeah. And something that I can't, I've, this is something I have to work on how to communicate. Is it mm-hmm. whenever people say, I don't have time for X, mm-hmm. the more I do X, the more time I have. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I find useful to put it <laughs> is that when people say people don't have time to cook. And so um, a single mom, you know, it's faster to go to McDonald's. Yeah, McDonald's extracts money and time from people yeah. and communities. Yeah. So one trip to McDonald's may save you time. Yeah. But relying on McDonald's in general requires more McDonald's. Requires, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to make more money to pay for McDonald's. It's, but you have to have to get, to get out of that cycle. You have to find a way that you can make food quickly uh, without McDonald's that costs less, or you have to find a way that you can work less hours so that you have more time to make food that takes more time to make. So right? it turns out that studies show that if, if it's available, mm-hmm. buying fruits and vegetables yeah. is cheaper, Yeah, but it's not available because they control right. the geog- geographical distribution. And so, also it, it comes a feedback loop too. You know, and talk about food deserts. One of the things is if you're growing up like in a food desert area, You've never eaten, I'm mean, not, not, you've never eaten fruits and vegetables, but you're not acclimatized to it or customized, accustomed to it at all. So you don't want it either. Like you're not even thinking about that anymore. It right? totally serves how, yeah, it keeps things yeah. going. And you're and addicted to all the sugar. Like in the US, it's so weird. They put high fructose corn syrup in like orange juice. Orange everything. juice has so, naturally has so much sugar. And like you go across the border because of the subsidies you have for corn, you mm-hmm. just see like the amount of sugar in the orange juice is bananas. It's, it's insane. Yeah. And that's very addictive. And yeah. Yeah. I. So there's this guy, there's also this garden called Harlem Grown. Mm-hmm. It's this guy uh, in the 08, 09 um, um, recession. This guy mm-hmm. lost his job and he started volunteering yeah. at the school up in Harlem. Yeah. Because, and he petitioned the city across the street from the school was an empty lot. It was actually filled with garbage, like mm-hmm. broken washing machines and tires and yeah. stuff. And the city said, okay, you can do something with it. And he was like, I, he hadn't really thought of what to do. He decides yeah. to get the kids after school. They yeah. clear out all the garbage and they make, they make some flower uh, plant beds and they start yeah. growing plants. Yeah. And he tells me the story when they make the plant beds and he gets some charred seeds for growing charred, charred seeds. And mm-hmm. he gives each kid a seed and he shows them like dig the hole, put it in, 
cover the mm-hmm. seed with dirt, yeah. water it, and the kids go, where's the chard? <laughs> and then, well, it takes time to grow. They had no, yeah. they'd never they grown a plant no before. Food. Yeah, they never dealt with it. Yeah. So now sometime later, the chard has grown and he yeah. gives the kids the chard to take home and eat. Yeah. So the next time he sees them, he says, how was the chard? And they go, our moms threw it out. Yeah. <laughs> because several generations just have, have lost the knowledge. Yeah, so yeah. when you're saying what to do, that's why I go to the Bronx and do the yeah. workshops because building a taste for it too. Like you have to, even in your, you know, yeah. Even so in the urban, inner, it, like urban person, a wealthier person is still gonna, you're not used to. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Yeah. So we have, I've also been to farmer's markets in the Bronx. I am picking the Bronx, but Brooklyn, Queens and, yeah. uh, and people walk right past it and they don't know that these are really actually very affordable vegetables Yeah, and very delicious, but they don't know. And, and yeah. the McDonald's uh, down the block is full. Yeah. So also likewise, um, payday loan stores versus, um, uh, um, oh, I belong to a credit union. So it's, yeah. you know, and, and food co-ops versus stores. But, but the, the, the thing of the payday loans is just that people need those, you know, like when you're poor, a stupid little thing happens, you break something, your boot breaks, and all of a sudden you have this big expense that you can't get any other way because the credit union is not just going to lend you money to buy new boots, right? But the payday loan will. They have a business. Stuck. In, a, in a jam, it'll, it'll do that. But what yeah. I'm getting at is that they have a business model to make your dependence on them greater. Sure, of course. Yeah, that's the whole. Every, so they yeah. get their toehold in, and then mm-hmm. they get, and then they keep making more and more and more and more. Yeah. Same with McDonald's. Same yeah. with Starbucks. Is like, oh, yeah. Profit, oh, we'll save but- you some time. Just get, just drop in for coffee on your way to work, and yeah. then, I mean, people don't need coffee at all, but then yeah. they feel <laughs> that they need it, and then they can't get without it, and then well, they don't. You know literally how to get addicted to it, and people can't wake up and go to work without it. Yeah. So, but, well, yeah, there's yeah, that kind of addiction too. But what I'm getting at is it is it. Yeah. The way out of this is like what I'm doing. People look at it and they think, well, I can't buy solar panels. That's yeah. not the point. The point is mm-hmm. to reverse the direction of, to recognize these things that we like McDonald's is not saving you time systemically. It may save you one trip at one time, but overall farmer's markets, if you replaced every McDonald's with a farmer's market, uh, people always take what I say so literally. But can if you we eat, increase the farmers' markets? Food, we decrease the dependence be, on can industrial you buy food that'll be as quickly satisfying as a McDonald's at a farmers market. Like, let's you're busy, you're working, you don't have that much time to cook. Is there something at a farmers market that you could whip up really quickly that'll be cheaper than a McDonald's? And all you have to do is just ad- adjust your expectations and tastes. I don't know. That's what my process does. That's what yeah. it's in one step, you're not going to transform your life. But step by step, you can. And once that would be like a very cool new black power movement or something in like different poor neighborhoods, not just black people, but just in every kind of person, a kind of empowerment to like, oh, let's get off all these. That's what I'm trying to do. That we have. Yeah. When people I don't know, say it's, it's, it's I, don't, I don't know enough. I, is it how economically viable is that? I don't know. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just, yeah. Yeah, there's a psychological barrier. To me, it's very similar to um, yeah. raising a child with a whole village mm. versus having to do it by yourself. Mm. So the it, it seems very clear to me, but I guess I got to fill in the middle steps for a lot of people that, I mean, at one point, all markets were farmer's markets. There was no such thing as fast right. food. Right. That's what the market. Yeah. And, um, 
I would not have believed, I grew up cooking. I mean, we were latchkey yeah. kids. And so we, yeah. me and my yeah. sisters and stepbrother and stepsister had to take turns making dinner each night. Yeah. Yeah. But it was always packaged. Yeah. So when I started making packaged food at first, all I could do is steam some vegetables and put them over beans. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was the first time I cooked beans from dry. You know, I, I soaked them and boiled them on the stove. And I'm not proud that I made it to in my 40s <laughs> to do something that most people have done their entire lives. Yes. But the way most people think, Josh, I don't have time for, you know, X. Mm. But cooking from scratch, cooking from scratch doesn't take a long time. Not knowing how to cook takes a long time. Not okay. knowing how to shop takes a long time. Once those skills come in, not only- I, I don't know, in my, in my life, I when you're in New York, to, you yeah. come over for my famous no packaging vegan stew yeah. okay. and you'll say, wait a minute, <laughs> you made five meals worth of food in, in 20 yeah. minutes prep time. That's faster than okay. I could go. That's, that's faster than mm -hmm. it takes just like unwrapping all the food. If I get takeout and that's, it's much cheaper. See, that sounds great. That's perfect. Yeah. Because you know, in my, because I'm doing this podcast project on top of having to work on top of other commons, it's horrible. It's like sucking up all my time in that sense. And I can't, I can't clean my apartment anymore. I can't making food is hell. Everything is hell. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we'll do an episode and I'll do this Spodak method with you and you'll start on this process. And it's, it's, it's against everything that I learned cut growing up. We can cut out time from yeah, making cleaning and cooking faster. I'd be very happy because like people drink Soylent or whatever. Yeah. It's exactly what people are saying will take longer is actually what they say they don't have time for. Yeah. Is actually when you do it, you have more time. So that would, that would be an example of conditions shifting faster than our consciousness, awareness of them has adapted. And it just takes somebody poking around and trying something new and saying, Hey, we can actually do this. You know, that's what 20, I'm doing. Yeah. 30 years, that couldn't happen. Yeah. That's yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not hundred percent convinced yet. You have to convince me, but I'm, if, if that's right, then that's, that would be an example of it. Yeah, for sure. So getting people, these beliefs that people have, including myself up until very recently, and, and in many areas still there. Yeah. It's getting past there. It's, it's, um, what you're trying to do with people understanding politics. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get people to understand with sustainability. When you <laughs> get it, it's much simpler than you yeah. thought. Like to me before your show. Yeah. Politics was like very hazy and very yeah. much like, I don't, it was just that, that stuff over there is like politics. Yeah. And left and right was to, you did an episode on, I think, uh, woke stuff and you're pointing out how people on the left are doing but, stuff that's very hierarchical, Yeah, but they don't realize it. Well, they're, they're, they're doing stuff. And this is very much like the Soviet Union, if you think about it, because, uh, so it's interesting with the woke stuff. I mean, I don't, I usually call it that, but when I, in the nineties, like when I was younger, I I knew people who were very, very concerned with the language that you're using and would be, you know, policing that stuff. But it was very different from what you see today. It tended to be very marginal people who were abused. And, you know, if you're going to be near me and I'm going to tolerate you, I just need you to, you know, talk to me a certain way and say certain things. And it was very easy to respect that stuff. But nowadays it's just a lot of rich kids coming from expensive universities who don't have that much adversity of their lives in their lives. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes to distinguish like, oh, who's, you know, who's doing this in a toxic way and who's not. But 
it was a lot of people who were abused protecting themselves, sometimes protecting themselves too much, like taking too much of a wide berth, but you could respect their motivations, you know? Uh, and then now I just see a lot of corporations doing it, a lot of rich kids, especially from those universities, doing it to gain status, to outcompete their peers. Oh, let me go find a tweet that my, this girl who's like, run, you know, trying to get this job that I want. Let me find some tweet that she made when she was 15 and said the wrong thing. Let's get that and get her canceled, you know, and let's, you know, and you see this also in these very political groups, everyone's canceling each other and driving each other insane. You know, a lot of in the activist circles, a lot of people are getting fed up with it and, and trying to extricate themselves from that, that whole thing. And they're just living in terror all the time. But what it is, is it's right wing dominance behavior. It's people trying to vie for status and hierarchy, which is in by definition, right wing. So right means pro political hierarchy, which means dominance hierarchy, which means some people make decisions and other people have to obey. And left means equality of decision-making power. So people are using left-wing terms like equality, gender equality, uh, all kinds of left-wing ideas, anti-racism, but they're actually feminism, but they're using them for right-wing purposes so that they can climb on top of a status hierarchy so that they can shit on other people and say, "Uh or like, for example, oh, well, you know, a lot of those working class voters are racist or those Bernie bros are sexist. And they're just, they don't, they're just using racism and sexism as a way of stopping someone from advocating for universal health care or, you know, or for, for higher wages or for unions. Um, you know, I saw somebody invoking COVID. Oh, well, you know, I support unions in principle, but when I see Starbucks people lining up uh, at, a, you know, doing a picket line, but they're not wearing masks, I don't support them and screw you and, and your union, you know? And you're like, well, you know, I'm immunocompromised. We're like, well, you can't catch COVID outdoors. This is just an excuse to be anti-union. You know, you're using a left-wing excuse, concern for people who are immunocompromised to do a right-wing thing, which is break unions. And that's, this is what's happening more and more. Like, and this happens every, every um, era. You have a left-wing movement, Christianity, for example, uh, you know, it's it, a rich person can't has less of a chance of going to heaven than a, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Right. That was Jesus. Uh, this was an anti-authoritarian uh, in some ways uh, religion that was a threat to power. But once the, the rich Roman ladies got interested in it and it filtered up through the, the for, for whatever reason, it filtered up into the spheres of power. It became a complete tool of domination and it becomes the Crusades and it becomes, you know, uh, all kinds of oppression. Uh, and same thing, uh, communism starts out as this libertarian uh, idea of workers together owning the, the means of production in direct democratic form. It's also, anyways, in some ways, there's a female liberation and, and just equality in general. And there's some anti-racist elements to it. And you see this every time there's a sort of equality movement, it still starts to spill out into gender equality. I mean, there's always sexist socialists and stuff like that, but you see like other groups saying, oh, yes, we deserve equality, too. But anyways, um, and then social, the, the government, the, the Russian Revolution happens, and then you see Stalin, even Lenin, using socialist flags, socialist words, the, the, the language of equality, the, the language of international uh, solidarity, the language of anti-racism, but just for oppression, the ruling class oppressing their own people in various ways uh, and, and doing uh, imperialism in other ways. Uh, so today you have people using this left-wing language, um, but they're using it for right-wing, uh, in right-wing ways. So I really, what I'm trying to, one of the things I try to do with my show is get people to see through that. Oh, yeah, this is fake socialism. This is fake egalitarianism. 
Stalin is actually a right winger, you know, because he's so much about uh, hierarchical top down power and, and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, and a lot of the woke stuff, mm, this isn't this, this is this, does this discourse, does this language, you know, I know people who, uh, you know, they're, you just see how, who are into all that language, but they're not as abusive about it. They're not policing you about it. Oh, you know, I prefer to be called this way. Oh, I understand you made a mistake versus someone who's like, ah, you said this, let's destroy them online. You know, mm-hmm. here's, you know, is that equality? Are you stimulating more interest in your cause and your ideas? If you lynch somebody online who doesn't know about your ideas or, you know, are you bringing them into the fold? Or are you chasing them out? And are you teaching them, you know, that, that woman, that actress from that, the Mandalorian or whatever, she said some stupid COVID stuff. And then she said some stupid stuff where she used the Holocaust as a metaphor for conservatives being oppressed. I think I read that. Yeah. It was dumb. It was, she was saying what I consider dumb stuff. I'm Jewish too. So, but I was like, she didn't say anything anti-Semitic. She's just, you know, why don't you talk to her and tell her why you think maybe that's offensive. Yeah, to talk to her would be, would be left. Yeah. To talk, talk to her, her. As, I'm a human being. You're a human being. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's, let's work that's this left. out. Let me so tell you when, why I think this is a bad idea and then make your own decision and whatever that's left wing, but saying, Oh, you need to be excommunicated. You need to be destroyed. What you're doing is you're creating a whole class of enemies. Cause a, that person's going to hate your guts. Cause you just got them fired. She got fired. You're, you're, you're getting her fired. So then she's going straight to work for Ben Shapiro's TV network, right? That's what you did. You created another Ben Shapiro person. And then there's millions of people who don't know that much about the Holocaust and they don't see why that was offensive. And all they know is like, Oh, if I say something, don't talk I don't about even, that. they didn't even tell her why what she said was bad. I'll, I don't even know what's bad or not bad. If I say something, I don't even know why I might, I might get fired from my job. I know I hate the left. That's the left. I hate those people. They're my enemies. And that's like a rational thing to think. So then you put all those people in the, in the Ben Shapiro camp. Like it's just, and I see that happening more and more. Like people who 10 years ago would never touch the Republican party with a 10 foot pole are like, well, you know, Donald Trump's kind of an idiot, but he's better than all those crazy woke people. They're going to destroy, you know, they're, <laughs> they, they see them as the bigger threat. Uh, it's a catastrophe. Because so. they don't want to be thrust under, they don't want to be at the bottom of a hierarchy. Well, they're just like, yeah, they're like, well, I, I don't know. Should women, uh, trans women be in sports? I'm not sure. I don't know. Or I don't like that. Or they have an opinion on it. That's not the progressive opinion. And no one is talking to them to talk them out of their opinion they're just lynching them and they know that they can't say anything so they're like well i know what i'm doing i'm gonna vote i might not say anything but then i'm gonna vote for this donald trump guy because i know he's against those people and it's really creepy i see people who never would be associated with right-wing stuff are becoming are are voting right-wing now and it's 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 awful Uh, when you say they're voting right-wing you're saying they're voting with the the side that describes itself as right-wing but they're actually Um, In that particular case, they may be voting against a right behavior. They're voting. So they're picked. So the thing with the U.S. and with most of our parties in most countries, you know, you have two right wing parties, as I see it in the U.S., right? You have the party of sort of more educated uh, people, which like corporate managers and and vote Democrats, (laughs) you know, and then the owners of used car salesmanship vote Republican <laughs> people who started their own business owners vote Republican managers vote uh, Democrat. And if you, if you look at the, the statistics, it's more people who went to college, people who do kind of corporate work that requires more of an education tend to be Democrats. 
and people who do who are more self-made and and became rich because the republicans are, are wealthier on the whole than democrats although that's changing too which is creepy uh but they tend to be people who got to their wealth without necessarily the education being the key to their their uh their wealth so yeah um when you see a hierarchy pardon yeah one of the things that I've been doing since your stuff is when I see a hierarchy, I look for the resource being controlled. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait stop. Just for, so, so what I meant to say was you have the Democrats who tend to use left-wing language, but they're accomplishing a lot of the same goals as, you know, the, the, the Republicans. So the Republicans are saying, Oh, well, these Mexicans are terrible. Uh, these black people are terrible. Be racist. You know, they're kind of like, like racist in that sense. And then the, Democrats are often using anti-racist language, but using it to divide working class, white working class people from black working class people, you know, oh, those hierarchy white class people are a bunch of racists because they have the wrong opinion on this, even though they voted for Obama last time, but now they voted for Donald Trump. So now they're racist. We hate them. Don't hey black working class people separate yourself from those white working class people. Don't join up with them and fight for unionization and fight for higher wages. Uh, but it's in the name of anti-racism, but it's still accomplishing the same goal. It's just dividing people and not bringing them together. It's just harder to notice because they are covering it up in this anti-racist language, but they kind of are generating racism in other ways. Although on some level they have, the Democratic Party is very confused in the U.S. because the Republican Party is just straight up funded by business and uh, well, religious stuff. But the, 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 the Democratic Party has you know, minority support has some union support. So they have to respond to those constituencies on some level, but they're also overwhelmed by all of this corporate money. So they, they have some, there's a bit of conflicts, you know, within the Democratic Party of how to respond to their different bases. But at the end of the day, they're using left-wing language to accomplish right-wing pro-corporate goals, whereas the uh, Republicans are just using right-wing language to accomplish similar goals. And it's just, they're kind of working together. The left wing doesn't realize because they don't understand the difference between freedom versus hierarchy. They don't realize what they're doing. They're not. They just think that they're. They, they just think that they're left wing. They're well. That you know, it's better to be anti racist than to be racist. But if you're being an anti racist in a way that just divides people who should be working together, in order and and the effect of that is keeping wages low. Like who, who is saying that? Oh God, I just heard an interview where the guy was saying that you know, someone who works in a company was telling like, oh. Anytime there's a union drive, all I have to do is, you know, call somebody racist or invoke some kind of, you know, culture war thing. And then I divide all the white workers from the black workers and they can't form a union, you know. And one of of the funny things is, you know, when you have all these anti-racist trainings, what they're doing, like those Robin DiAngelo type of trainings, what they're doing is they they make you feel so guilty and so evil. Fearful. When Yeah. And what you're doing is you're just they're training you to be afraid of. If you're white, they're tra- making you afraid of your black coworkers or your other minority coworkers. So you're so afraid of being racist that your cortisol spikes up. And guess what that's called when you are uncomfortable around people who are different than you? That's racist, <laughs> right? Like you're so, you're so afraid because you, want, you don't want to be racist, but you're actually getting the same. You're getting an unpleasant association every time you see your black coworker because you're afraid, oh, if I compliment their, their clothes, am I being racist? Because that's what that training is, is training you to think. It's, it's catastrophic and corporations love those anti-racist trainings because what those anti-racist trainings do is they keep workers 
I mean, it, it's trying to smooth out con- racial conflicts, which it sort of does because people are not going to say as many obnoxious microaggression type things. But at the same time, it keeps people, it, it destroys solidarity because everyone's afraid of each other that they're going to be denounced and, and, and called out. So they don't work together and this, they won't join together, for example, to fight for higher wages or better conditions. But as you, any union organizer will tell you, like uh, you go into a, a, a union uh, environment a, a, a lower class worker environment, uh, low skilled workers, and they're like 10 times more racist than what you're going to see in, in, a, in a corporation because, you know, they haven't been through university. They haven't been through that sort of socializing against anti-racism. So they're like, ah, Filipinos, I never met a good one. Like that's the kind of thing that people will often see. You'll hear stuff like that in low, working class environments. But what happens is through the struggle, because they all understand, well, we want this $15 an hour wage. And well, my stupid opinions about Filipinos is causing my Filipino uh, co-workers to not like me and then we can't work together and this is not this is against my own interest this racism is against my interest this sexism is against my own interest the transphobia homophobia it's not helping me achieve my 15 dollars an hour so i'm gonna shut the fuck up and i'm going to um you know work with these people and the more you work with them the more you like them and the more your racism goes away so one of the best the, the unions discovered this in the 30s or 40s is that because they were racist they wouldn't let black people in the unions so whenever there was any kind of strike, they would hire black people as strike breakers, you know, and they realized like, this is a catastrophe. We need to, so unions became the bastions of anti-racism in that era because they, they realized it's in their economic interest. So that's the kind of anti-racism training that works best, but nobody wants to do that because it doesn't uh, divide up the working class. Yeah. The, I mean, the corporations don't want to do it. No, exactly. And so I think, is it fair to conclude that one of the main reasons you're making the materials that you're making is so that when people look at politics, they recognize amidst all the language, amidst all the identities and so forth, the main thing is, are we, are we going toward equality or going toward hierarchy? Yeah. I think most people will agree that they want more political equality. Uh, If you look at studies, you can see this too. Like even Republicans, want less economic, most of, you know, there's different kinds of people, but overall tend to want much less inequality than exists. They definitely want much less inequality of power. Again, Republicans, shockingly to me, are more against monopolies than Democrats are. Uh, So there's all these things that people can agree on. And if they could just get out of their weird identity bubbles of, oh, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a left winger, I'm a right winger, in the sense where they don't know what those terms actually mean, because the, the genius thing about American politics and PR companies and, and, and consultants is that they figured out, I don't think that they figured out this on purpose, but um, so people have, there's these great five personality uh, traits in psychology, the big five. And uh, what you can track most with self-identification of left versus right, like a person who descri- defines themselves as being on the left and a person who defines themselves as being on the right. And this is true in all the countries where they studied it is it tracks most closely, never mind with education, with, with income, with any of that stuff, it, it tracks most closely with the big five personality trait of openness to new experiences. The more open to new experiences you are, the more you consider yourself to be on the left. The more closed to new experiences you are, you uh, consider yourself to be on the right. Now, that is what I would call conservative versus liberal disposition, not right and left. And in the past, you had people with conservative dispositions, and we've evolved that for a reason. So in the Paleolithic era, 
you'd have a hunter gatherer group and they'd be doing their way of life for a generation or two. And then the climate would start to change. And then you have a certain amount of people who want to keep doing things the way they are more conservative minded people. And then you have a certain amount of people who want to do something different. Well, in the stable period, the conservative people have the more adaptive mentality, but then the, in the change period, the people who are more open to new experiences have the more adaptive mentality. So you always need a mix of that. And it, it kind of tracks around 50-50, like it, it's, a, it's a bell curve distribution kind of right in the middle uh, of, of this open to closed experience and of these people who consider themselves left and consider themselves right today. So in the past, you would have communists who would have conservative disposition. You would have liberals who would have radical liberals, but who had conservative disposition and, and then you have open to experience people who would have right-wing politics like it would all be mixed up but what happened it was just about it was about your policy and your class position but now the PR companies have sort of figured out that well we can goad all the open to experience people into this identity category and we're going to call it left but it's not actually left it's just the types of messaging that works for open to experience mentality people and then all of these types of messages, which we're going to call right, and these messages are going to work to the closed to new experience types of people. So you have these two, this what's called in the U.S. left and right, which aren't left and right, but they do map pretty nicely with open to closed versus closed to experience. And that's why you keep seeing all these insane elections where it's always just like 50, 50, 49, 48. Like it's kind of ridiculous how, how much, like, you know, years ago, you used to see a much bigger divides like in elections and now it's just like 49 51 it's ridiculous well that's because the pr industry of, of political pr consultants have sort of figured out how to separate how to make you feel good voting a certain way if you're Is the type a- of who responds to those right-wing so-called messages like even if you want lots of people with concern like i can make and i'm going to do videos on this conservative I was wondering, yeah so this is an upcoming video right yeah conservative okay. arguments for socialism concern like i'm going to do a video called how socialism would solve all of Jordan Peterson's problems. Jordan Peterson is a person with a conservative disposition. All the problems that he talks about could be solved with a lot of left-wing policies. You know, a lot of conservative people who identify with conservatism actually want socialized healthcare. They want money out of politics. They want all of this right-wing, left-wing stuff, except maybe they're hostile towards immigrants and trans people or something like that. So, and a lot of people who consider themselves left-wing actually identify with a lot of right-wing policies, like people uh, on the political left in the U.S., especially the center for some reason, don't like democracy. They think the world might be a better run by a technocratic elite than by a democratic elite because they think the population is too stupid to vote. Well, that's actually right wing. But people who identify in the left, you know, especially in like communist uh, countries, they believe in those policies. So what we call left and right isn't left and right at all, but they're just PR uh, created identity groups that have preyed upon a certain types of psychologies which are innate uh, in distribution to make you feel good doing something you're the type of person what actually happens yeah you're the type of person who reacts well to those anti-immigrant messages so i'm going to use those messages to get you to support tax cuts you know oh you're the person who who reacts towards like you like immigrants you like new people i'm going to use that to get you to support tax cuts (laughs) also or i'm going to you know or or other anti-union uh i'm going to get you to to be anti-union in the name of openness to immigrants, you know? <laughs> so. All right. I got a couple two, questions. Two right wing, just different styles of right wing, which track with openness versus closed to experience. Yeah. First of all, I can't wait for this episode to come out. So 
yeah. for all the people who are still in this episode, uh, <laughs> what he's taught, what he, every, everything up until the last bunch of stuff you said was, was in previous episodes. And some of that was in there. Yeah. When you see a, something that I've been doing since listening to your stuff is when I see a hierarchy, I look for a scarce resource that someone has mm -hmm. control over. Yeah. So what, um, when, so when you, an example you used in one of your videos that you mentioned here on, on the cancel stuff was, uh, yeah. a, a student at Smith who complained about a janitor and got the janitor fired. Oh, or no, yeah, I think yeah. the janitor didn't get fired in the end. I think they, they resolved it, but it yeah, what but was the resource there? What was like, so she had, she had a, a position in a hierarchy that was above his. Oh, well, the resource there is just the employment, like the money, because the school pays his salary. She pays the schools, like the student. So it was a rich woman who was black, uh, who complained, you know, it cost $60,000 to go to the school. <laughs> she complained about the janitor because the janitor said, oh, you can't sit here. You have to leave because the cafeteria... Uh, for some reason, the, the janitor talked to someone else, the security and the security. The, the security guard, yeah, because he was told the janitor was instructed. No one's allowed to sit in this area. So he sees a woman sitting in the area and he goes, hey, you're not allowed to sit here. And she interpreted it as a racist act. And then she complained to the school. And then at first the school fires him, you know, for racism. And then what happens? Yeah. yeah. And they can't get a job anywhere because his name is everywhere and thing. But what's the reason? I mean, that's just employment. Like they're catering to her because she's the customer she's the one paying them oh, and so, then they're so talking about how how the uh, most people reputation. it's reputation because they don't want the reputation as racist and they want to placate she's an important person she pays their tuition and you know she has prestige uh, the institution has prestige among that class of people wealthy people who can afford to go to that school and they want to placate those people so they don't care if this guy gets fired or humiliated or has his name ruined because what they care about is just getting that class of people into their schools. Okay. More than defending him and may, and risk being associated as protecting a racist stuff, even if it's completely not true. Like their own investigation found that he didn't do anything. He just did what he was told to do. You were saying, when you said that in studies, if I heard you right, that both yeah. um, Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives both prefer a lot of things that are more toward equality and democracy. Yeah. yeah. So one factor that will change that is if you have access to the resource and if you lose that resource, you're going to lose your power. So if you're mm -hmm. born into a wealthy family yeah. and that family has, um, you know, if you just, if you do what your dad did and that's mm -hmm. going to get your job at JP Morgan, yeah. you're going to try to protect the way things are. Absolutely. Yeah. And so even if you like democracy, you're still, or I, I, I'm just the, the guy I interviewed just before the conversation I recorded yesterday yeah. was with the guy who studies, uh, American history from before the Civil War. So I just yeah. read his book on slavery. Yeah. On, on, I'm sorry, on the, the culture of slaveholders. Uh, so yeah. if you're born white in the South in 1800, uh -huh. yeah. you're going to really want slavery to work. Of course. And you're you going to believe whatever it takes. And you might like democracy in principle, but at yeah. least as far as slavery is concerned, you're going to do what it takes to maintain. You don't want... So I'm doing an episode now on the Russian Revolution. And it's uh -huh. interesting because in the first part of the Russian Revolution, before the Bolsheviks took over, you had a government that was this coalition of, of like liberal parties and, and different socialist uh, parties. But it was dominated by the liberal liberal parties. And the, the person at the head, I don't know if he was called prime minister or whatever he was called, was uh, Prince Lvov. And he was a uh, member of the nobility. 
but he was liberal and he, he wanted, you know, a society without the monarchy. And he would say things like, you know, I'm a landowner, but it's true. We've been really terrible to the peasants and, and what we've done is, is, is wrong and they're right to want their land and to take away our land. But at the end of the day, when it came to it, he wouldn't give them the land because it's, well, you always find an excuse, right? There's always, yeah. well, we can't do this right now because the constituent assembly hasn't been, but whatever, there's excuses, you know, well, yes, in principle, I want to do that, but not right now because, you know, so yeah, that's just. <laughs> I, think, I think there might be here something that, um, that I've done that a lot of people haven't done. And that's to tug at the thread of what's, so this, the student who complained about the janitor. Yeah. She had wealth and he didn't. Mm -hmm. And if we keep tracing back where her wealth came from. Yeah. I think it's going to keep mostly going to come back to one thing. What? Fossil fuels. <laughs> I have, and I mean, I've tugged at this thread and. But often like, like for example, today in Europe, if you look at the richest people in Britain, they're the same people who were the Norman invaders in 1066. Like the, if you were a descendant of the Norman invaders who took over England in 1066, like the Frankish, you know, Normans, mm -hmm. you were, chances are that you're still one of the wealthiest people in Britain today. So that has nothing to do with fossil fuels. It's just that power. Well, so it's geographic. Right. I don't know. Like, like maybe, you know, uh, there's wealthy people, a lot of colleges because they're, they want as many black people as possible. They, they like people from Nigeria because there's a lot of very well-educated uh, and wealthy Nigerians that they come in. So maybe their wealth comes from fossil fuels. I don't know, but you know, two, 300 years ago, like wealth has passes down. Fossil fuels have been around for 150, 20 years. Wealth has been transmitted up to this day for way longer than that. Yeah. Keep yeah. I'll grant that. Is Having competition demystified. Yeah. Talks about All right, I'm, I got to tell you how Walmart happened. Yeah. Walmart. Okay. Um, it looks like Walmart is in a highly competitive industry. It's changed now from when it grew really big. Yeah. It looks like it's a retail place and retail, yeah. is like everyone has to compete with everyone. You'd think that it would be not competitive. Yeah. The way it actually started, and I have yeah. to reread it to get it, to get it right. At the time, Sears was the big deal. Sears oh, yeah, yeah. cities. Yeah. And Walmart, it wasn't intentional. I don't think it was intentional, but yeah. all they could do is go for second tier cities. So okay. cities of like a hundred thousand people or something, maybe smaller, 50,000 people. I forget the exact number. Yeah. Yeah. Sears didn't want them because it wasn't, they weren't big enough for Sears, but Sears dominated the cities. Yeah. As it turns out, there's a certain size below which one box store works, but two doesn't. Ah, okay. So oh. Those, and it turns out there's a lot of towns like that. So Walmart grew yeah, like yeah. crazy in these towns. And if you, if you look at Walmarts in towns our, below that threshold to... versus ones where yeah. there could be a competitor, the profits are all coming yeah. from those because you can charge right. what it costs for the product plus what it takes to drive to the whole other city. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it actually turns out that Walmart wasn't, didn't have any competition in all these little markets all over the place. The next thing you know, they took over everywhere. So it was all geographic. It was a very local ge geographic monopolies. But are you getting at the point that because the U.S. was built in such a spread out manner on purpose at the behest of fossil fuel and car companies, that that's what allowed Walmart to dominate? I'm giving an example where yeah. geographical, something having a geographic monopoly yeah. 
is really like geography is one of the main sources of monopoly. Yeah. If you if you open yes. a yes. um yeah you uh, happen to be on oil you know if you open a barbershop Saudi Arabia is on the oil patch yeah what Saudi Arabia is on the oil patch that's yeah. why they're able to dominate their their citizens yeah also in a city if you open yeah. a dry cleaner where there's yeah. no dry cleaners you're very likely very unlikely to see a dry cleaner open up within a block or two of you because you right. have the local high, uh, the local yeah. monopoly it's not going to be viable for either of you it's, yeah and so a lot of one of the things it says is like when you have a monopoly first get a monopoly and mm -hmm. then grow your monopoly that's mm -hmm. if you want to make profits that's how you yeah. do it yeah and and so it seems what i'm what it seems to me is that fossil fuels have that property mm -hmm. that and so the norman invasion stuff mm -hmm. i would bet that if you look mm -hmm. then they probably got some land that was somehow was valuable and were never let go of it mm -hmm. yeah also, have you read the book um I haven't read it. I've only been watching videos of the authors. Um, Why Nations Fail? Oh, yeah. To uh, Asimoglu. And I think I read that like a million years ago, but yeah. I think that, the way that you went that, to town that, on yeah. what? Is that, is that Asimoglu? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Ajimoglu. Yeah, it's a is long it, way to... It's, um, is that who it is? Anyways, I think I might be mixing it up with something else, but okay. What about it? Yeah, that's it. Darren Asimoglu and James right. Robinson. Yeah. And here's, I, I have the page up because I was looking at it on Amazon. I don't buy from Amazon, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. I do read the reviews, but I do yeah. not buy. I haven't, I can't write reviews because I haven't spent a penny at Amazon in like 10 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's got 5,000 reviews. Yeah. And, uh, um, but if anyone wants to read it, I buy it somewhere else. Yeah. Anyway, they, they do all, I think you go to town with it the way that you went to yeah. town on uh, uh, Dawn of Everything. Because <laughs> yeah. they talk, they talk about, um, why nations fail? And they're like, it can't be geography because look at North Korea and South Korea, same culture. Right. right. But, and they keep coming up with that. It's different, um, different political institutions. They can be open or closed or inclusive or exclusive. Right, 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 right. And I mean, that's part of it. But, but yeah, there's a huge difference between North and South Korea in, in terms of like who they border. And, yeah. and he tells a story about some conquistador that shows up in South America, uh, you know, 16 something or 15 something. And yeah, they come in and they try to enslave the people, but they're all spread out. Yeah. And they just keep walking away. Yeah. And then they, so, and they think, well, we can't do it here, but then they go up and they find what they character, what uh, the authors characterize or the speaker, I guess I should say, cause I'm, I'm seeing this from a video. He characterizes yeah. it as a more, he didn't say it this way, but he implies like a more advanced society, meaning uh -huh. hierarchies had had a chance to form. Yeah. And then they can enslave them. By just taking over the hierarchy, the top spot of the hierarchy. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking probably there's some geographic thing that set up in, in one area, oh, there's food is distributed and the other it wasn't. And they're, they're claiming that they, from their perspective, one was more advanced relative to the other. Yeah. And the same thing. And then they talk about, look at North America. They came in and they tried to enslave and people got walking away. I'm like, yeah. hierarchy. Yeah. 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 Of course. That's geography, yeah. not geography, but um, distribution of, of resources. Yeah, well, that, that's why, um, so like, if you look at the Pacific Northwest Coast, you have all of these um, quite hierarchical, especially for uh, hunter-gatherer societies. They don't, hunter-gatherers just defined as people who don't do farming, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have all these societies who are quite hierarchical with chiefs, and they have slaves, and they have different, you know, tribes with different uh, levels of status. And they found that it's not just because of their salmon economy. Because at first they've had that salmon economy for I think 800 years 
before they see any evidence of hierarchy in, in the in the archaeology. But what happens is that outside that range, it becomes more as population grows, there's less place to escape to. Because if you try to escape from, you know, then you get uh, killed by uh, other tribes who are trying to dominate that land. So now you have to obey your clan leader, you know, who protects the resources that you depend on. And then there are some clans who uh, control better um, fishing grounds than others. And then they have more wealth. And but anyways, yeah, it's always about can you get away? <laughs> yeah. And in our world, there better of, there's nowhere to escape anymore. If you, all you have to do is think about the job. Can I walk away from this job and find an equal or better job? If I can, then when my boss is annoying, I'm going to say, I'm going to leave. And your boss is like, oh, okay, okay, never mind, never mind. Here, have a, take, take an extra 10 minutes for lunch. Or, you know, oh, you came late today. It's not so bad. Uh, you know, try not to do it again. But if there's like 10 people who want your job and they can hire you and replace you very easily because, you know, you're easy to train your replacement. Well, you come two minutes late and they're like, I had enough of you. Get out of here. You know, like it's just, it's the same thing. Can you walk away easily or not? And that's, what the, that's where the power comes from. All right, we're coming up on three hours. Oh, and- shit. <laughs> oh, Oh yeah, I got to go soon. Yeah, yeah, I got to. Yeah. So let's cut off here. I suspect, I, I hope to keep in touch and I suspect <laughs> yeah. we might do another episode at some point. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to talk about still. Yeah, this will be kind of abrupt, but let's let's uh, arbitrarily end here. Uh, unless there's sure. any, any last words from you and anything to say? I could go on for a million years, but yeah. I <laughs> so I have nothing that I can think of right now. Uh, lots to chew on, yeah. All right, well, um, Stay on. Let's chat a bit uh, uh, before uh, I'll stop recording, but let's uh, keep um, schedule next time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, uh, great first (laughs) conversation, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you.